Simon and Schuster Audio presents The Cold Moon, a Lincoln Rhyme novel by Jeffrey Deaver. Read by Joe Montaigne. You can't see me, but I'm always present. Run as fast as you can, but you'll never escape me. Fight me with all your strength, but you'll never defeat me. I kill when I wish, but can never be brought to justice. Who am I? Old Man Time Part 1 12.02 a.m. Tuesday Time is dead as long as it is being clicked off by little wheels. Only when the clock stops does time come to life. William Faulkner How long did it take them to die? The man this question was posed to didn't seem to hear it. He looked in the rearview mirror again and concentrated on his driving. The hour was just past midnight and the streets in lower Manhattan were icy. A cold front had swept the sky clear and turned an earlier snow to slick glaze on the asphalt and concrete. The two men were in the rattling Band-Aid mobile, as Clever Vincent had dubbed the tan SUV. It was a few years old, the brakes needed servicing and the tires replacing. But taking a stolen vehicle in for work would not be a wise idea, especially since two of its recent passengers were now murder victims. The driver, a lean man in his fifties with trim black hair, made a careful turn down a side street and continued his journey, never speeding, making precise turns, perfectly centered in his lane. He'd drive the same whether the streets were slippery or dry, whether the vehicle had just been involved in murder or not. Careful. Meticulous. How long did it take? Big Vincent. Vincent with long sausage fingers, always damp, and a taut brown belt stretching the first hole, shivered hard. He'd been waiting on the street corner after his night shift as a word-processing temp. It was bitterly cold, but Vincent didn't like the lobby of his building. The light was greenish, and the walls were covered with big mirrors in which he could see his oval body from all angles. So he'd stepped into the clear, cold December air and paced and ate a candy bar. Okay, two. As Vincent was glancing up at the full moon, a shockingly white disc visible for a moment through a canyon of buildings, the watchmaker reflected aloud. How long did it take them to die? Interesting. Vincent had known the watchmaker, whose real name was Gerald Duncan, for only a short time, but he'd learned that you ask the man questions at your own risk. Even a simple query could open the door to a monologue. Man, could he talk, and his answers were always organized, like a college professor's. Vincent knew that the silence for the last few minutes was because Duncan was considering his answer. Vincent opened a can of Pepsi. He was cold, but he needed something sweet. He chugged it and put the empty can in his pocket. He ate a packet of peanut butter crackers. Duncan looked over to make sure Vincent was wearing gloves. They always wore gloves in the Band-Aid mobile. Meticulous. I'd say there are several answers to that, 
Duncan said in his soft, detached voice. For instance, the first one I killed was twenty-four, so you could say it took him twenty-four years to die. Like, yeah, thought clever Vincent with the sarcasm of a teenager, though he had to admit that this obvious answer hadn't occurred to him. The other was thirty-two, I think. A police car drove by the opposite way. The blood in Vincent's temples began pounding, but Duncan didn't react. The cops showed no interest in the stolen explorer. Another way to answer the question, Duncan said, is to consider the elapsed time from the moment I started until their hearts stopped beating. That's probably what you meant. See, people want to put time into easy-to-digest frames of reference. That's valid, as long as it's helpful. Knowing the contractions come every twenty seconds is helpful. So is knowing that the athlete ran a mile in three minutes fifty-eight seconds, so he wins the race. Specifically how long it took them tonight to die. Well, that isn't important, as long as it wasn't fast. A glance at Vincent. I'm not being critical of your question. No, Vincent said, not caring if he was critical. Vincent Reynolds didn't have many friends and could put up with a lot from Gerald Duncan. I was just curious. I understand, but I just didn't pay any attention. But the next one, I'll time it. The girl? Tomorrow? Vincent's heart beat just a bit faster. He nodded. Later today, you mean? It was after midnight. With Gerald Duncan, you had to be precise, especially when it came to time. Right. Hungry Vincent had nosed out clever Vincent, now that he was thinking of Joanne, the girl who'd die next. Later today. The killer drove in a complicated pattern back to their temporary home in the Chelsea district of Manhattan, south of Midtown, near the river. The streets were deserted, the temperature was in the teens, and the wind flowed steadily through the narrow streets. Duncan parked at a curb and shut the engine off, set the parking brake. The men stepped out. They walked for a half block through the icy wind. Duncan glanced down at his shadow on the sidewalk, cast by the moon. I've thought of another answer, about how long it took them to die. Vincent shivered again, mostly but not only from the cold. When you look at it from their point of view, the killer said, you could say that it took forever. 7.01 a.m. What is that? From his squeaky chair in the warm office, the big man sipped coffee and squinted through the bright morning light toward the far end of the pier. He was the morning supervisor of the tugboat repair operation located on the Hudson River north of Greenwich Village. There was a Moran with a bum diesel due to dock in 40 minutes, but at the moment the pier was empty, and the supervisor was enjoying the warmth of the shed, where he sat with his feet up on the desk, coffee cradled against his chest. He wiped some condensation off the window and looked again. What is it? A small black box sat by the edge of the pier, the side that faced Jersey. It hadn't been there when the facility had closed at six yesterday, and nobody would have docked after that. Had to come from the land side. 
There was a chain-link fence to prevent pedestrians and passers-by from getting into the facility. But as the man knew from the missing tools and trash drums, go figure, if somebody wanted to break in, they would. But why leave something? He stared for a while, thinking. It's cold out, it's windy, the coffee's just right. Then he decided, oh, hell, better check. He pulled on his thick gray jacket, gloves and hat, and taking a last slug of coffee, stepped outside into the breathtaking air. The supervisor made his way through the wind along the pier, his watering eyes focused on the black box. The hell is it? The thing was rectangular, less than a foot high, and the low sunlight sharply reflected off something on the front. He squinted against the glare. The white-capped water of the Hudson sloshed against the pilings below. Ten feet away from the box, he paused, realizing what it was. A clock, an old-fashioned one, with those funny numbers, Roman numerals, and a moon face on the front. Looked expensive. He glanced at his watch and saw the clock was working. The time was accurate. Who'd leave a nice thing like that here? Well, all right, I got myself a present. As he stepped forward to pick it up, though, his legs went out from under him and he had a moment of pure panic, thinking he'd tumble into the river. But he went straight down, landing on the patch of ice he hadn't seen, and slid no further. Wincing in pain, gasping, he pulled himself to his feet. The man glanced down and saw that this wasn't normal ice. It was reddish-brown. Oh, Christ, he whispered, as he stared at the large patch of blood, which had pooled near the clock and frozen slick. He leaned forward, and his shock deepened when he realized how the blood had gotten there. He saw what looked like bloody fingernail marks on the wooden decking of the pier, as if someone with slashed fingers or wrists had been holding on to keep from falling into the churning waters of the river. He crept to the edge and looked down. No one was floating in the choppy water. He wasn't surprised. If what he imagined was true, the frozen blood meant the poor bastard had been here a while ago, and if he hadn't been saved, his body'd be halfway to Liberty Island by now. Fumbling for his cell phone, he backed away and pulled his glove off with his teeth. A final glance at the clock, then he hurried back to the shed, calling the police with a stubby, quaking finger. Before and after. The city was different now, after that morning in September, after the explosions, the huge tails of smoke, the buildings that disappeared. You couldn't deny it. You could talk about the resilience, the metal, the get-back-to-work attitude of New Yorkers, and that was true. But people still paused when planes made that final approach to LaGuardia and seemed a bit lower than normal. You crossed the street wide around an abandoned shopping bag. You weren't surprised to see soldiers or police dressed in dark uniforms carrying black military-style machine guns. The Thanksgiving Day parade had come and gone without incident, and now Christmas was in full swing, crowds everywhere. But floating atop the festivities, like a reflection in a department store's holiday window, was the persistent image of the towers that no longer were, the people no longer with us. And of course, the big question, what would happen next? Lincoln Rhyme had his own before and after, and he understood this concept very well. 
There was a time he could walk and function, and then came the time when he could not. One moment he was as healthy as everyone else, searching a crime scene, and a minute later a beam had snapped his neck and left him a C4 quadriplegic, almost completely paralyzed from the shoulders down. Before and after. There are moments that change you forever. And yet Lincoln Rhyme believed if you make too grave an icon of them, then the events become more potent, and the bad guys win. Now, early on a cold Tuesday morning, these were Rhyme's thoughts as he listened to a national public radio announcer, in her unshakable FM voice, report about a parade planned for the day after tomorrow, followed by some ceremonies and meetings of government officials, all of which logically should have been held in the nation's capital. But the up-with-New-York attitude had prevailed, and spectators as well as protesters would be present in force and clogging the streets, making the life of security-sensitive police around Wall Street far more difficult. As with politics, so with sports. Playoffs that should occur in New Jersey were now scheduled for Madison Square Garden, as a display, for some reason, of patriotism. Rhyme wondered cynically if next year's Boston Marathon would be held in New York City. Before and After Rhyme had come to believe that he himself really wasn't much different in the after. His physical condition, his skyline, you could say, had changed, but he was essentially the same person as in the before, a cop and a scientist who was impatient, temperamental, okay, sometimes obnoxious, relentless, and intolerant of incompetence and laziness. He didn't play the gimp card, didn't whine, didn't make an issue of his condition. Though good luck to any building owners who didn't meet the Americans with Disabilities Act requirements for door width and ramps when he was at a crime scene in their buildings. As he listened to the report now, the fact that certain people in the city seemed to be giving in to self-pity irritated him. I'm going to write a letter, he announced to Tom. The slim young aide, in dark slacks, white shirt, and thick sweater, Rhyme's Central Park West townhouse suffered from a bad heating system and ancient insulation, glanced up from where he was over-decorating for Christmas. Rhyme enjoyed the irony of his placing a miniature evergreen tree on top of a table, below which a present, though an unwrapped one, already waited. A box of adult disposable diapers. Letter? He explained his theory that it was more patriotic to go about business as usual. I'm going to give him hell. The times, I think. Why don't you? asked the aide, whose profession was known as caregiver, though Tom said that being in the employ of Lincoln Rhyme, his job description was really saint. I'm going to, Rhyme said adamantly. Good for you, though one thing. Rhyme lifted an eyebrow. The criminalist could, and did, get great expression out of his extant body parts, shoulders, face, and head. Most of the people who say they're going to write a letter don't. People who do write letters just go ahead and write them. They don't announce it. Ever notice that? Thank you for the brilliant insight into psychology, Tom. You know that nothing's going to stop me now. Good, repeated the aide. Using the touchpad controller, the criminalist drove his red Storm Arrow wheelchair closer to one of the half-dozen large, flat-screen monitors in the room. Command, he said, into the voice recognition system, via a microphone attached to the chair. Word processor, 
WordPerfect dutifully opened on the screen. Command type. Dear Sirs. Command. Colon. Command. Paragraph. Command. Type. It has come to my attention. The doorbell rang and Tom went to see who the visitor was. Rhyme closed his eyes and was composing his rant to the world when a voice intruded. Hey, Link. Merry Christmas. Um, ditto. Rhyme grumbled to paunchy, disheveled Lon Salito walking through the doorway. The big detective had to maneuver carefully. The room had been a quaint parlor in the Victorian era, but now was chock-a-block with forensic science gear. Optical microscopes, an electron microscope, a gas chromatograph, laboratory beakers and racks, pipettes, petri dishes, centrifuges, chemicals, books and magazines, computers, and thick wires which ran everywhere. When Rhyme began doing forensic consulting out of his townhouse, the power-hungry equipment frequently would blow circuit breakers. The juice running into the place probably equaled the combined usage by everyone else on the block. Command. Volume. Level 3. The Environmental Control Unit obediently turned down NPR. Not in the spirit of the season, are we? the detective asked. Rhyme didn't answer. He looked back at the monitor. Hey, Jackson. Salido bent down and petted a small, long-haired dog curled up in an NYPD evidence box. He was temporarily living here. His former owner, Tom's elderly aunt, had passed away recently in Westport, Connecticut after a long illness. Among the young man's inheritances was Jackson, a Havanese. The breed, related to the Bijan Frise, originated in Cuba. Jackson was staying here until Tom could find a good home for him. We got a bad one, Link, Salito said, standing up. He started to take off his overcoat, but changed his mind. Jesus is cold. Is this a record? Don't know. Don't spend much time on the Weather Channel. He thought of a good opening paragraph of his letter to the editor. Bad, Salito repeated. Rhyme glanced at Salito with a cocked eyebrow. Two homicides. Same M.O., more or less. Lots of bad ones out there, Lon. Why are these any badder? As often happened in the tedious days between cases, Rhyme was in a bad mood. Of all the perps he'd come across, the worst was boredom. But Salito had worked with Rhyme for years and was immune to the criminalists' attitudes. Got a call from the big building. Brass want you and the Amelia on this one. They said they're insisting. Oh, insisting? I promised I wouldn't tell you they said that. You don't like to be insisted. Can we get to the bad part, Lon, or is that too much to ask? Where's Amelia? Westchester on a case. Should be back soon. The detective held up a wait-a-minute finger as his cell phone rang. He had a conversation, nodding and jotting notes. He disconnected and glanced at Rhyme. Okay, here we have it. Sometime last night, our perp, he grabs he? Rhyme asked pointedly. Okay, we don't know the gender for sure. Sex. What? Rhyme said, gender's primarily a linguistic concept. It refers to designating words male or female in certain languages. Sex is a biological concept differentiating male and female organisms. Thanks for the grammar lesson, the detective muttered. Maybe it'll help if I'm ever on jeopardy. Anyway... He grabs some poor schmuck and takes him to that boat repair pier on the Hudson. 
We're not exactly sure how he does it, but he forces the guy, or woman, to hang on over the river and then cuts their wrists. The Vic holds out for a while, looks like long enough to lose a crap load of blood, but then just lets go. Body? Not yet. Coast Guard and ESU are searching. I heard plural. Okay. Then we get another call a few minutes later to check out an alley downtown off Cedar near Broadway. The perp's got another Vic. A uniform finds this guy duct-taped and on his back. The perp rigged this iron bar, weighs maybe 75 pounds, above his neck. The Vic has to hold it up to keep from getting his throat crushed. 75 pounds. Okay, given the strength issues, I'll grant you the perp's sex probably is male. Tom came into the room with coffee and pastries. Salido, his weight a constant issue, went for the Danish first. His diet hibernated during the holidays. He finished half and, wiping his mouth, continued. So to Vic's holding up the bar, which maybe he does for a while, but 75 pounds? He doesn't make it. Who's the Vic? Name's Theodore Adams, lived near Battery Park. A 911 came in last night from a woman, said her brother was supposed to meet her for dinner, and never showed. That's the name she gave. Sergeant from the precinct was going to call her this morning. Lincoln Rhyme generally didn't find soft descriptions helpful, but he conceded that bad fit the situation. So did the word intriguing. He asked, Why do you say it's the same M.O.? Pup left a calling card at both scenes. Clocks. As in TikTok? Yep. The first one was by the pool of blood on the pier. The other was next to the Vic's head. It was like the duo wanted them to see it. And I guess hear it. Describe them, the clocks. Looked old-fashioned, that's all I know. Not a bomb? Nowadays, in the time of the after, every item of evidence that ticked was routinely checked for explosives. Nope, won't go bang, but the squad sent him up to Rodman's neck to check for bio or chemical agents. Same brand of clock, looks like. Spooky, one of the responding said, has this face of a moon on it. Oh, and just in case we were slow, he left a note under the clocks. Computer printout. No handwriting. And they said? Salido glanced down at his notebook, not relying on memory. Rhyme appreciated this in the detective. He wasn't brilliant, but he was a bulldog and did everything slowly and with perfection. He read, The full cold moon is in the sky, shining on the corpse of earth, signifying the hour to die and end the journey begun at birth. He looked up at Rhyme. It was signed, The Watchmaker. We've got two Vicks and a lunar motif. Often an astronomical reference meant that the killer was planning to strike multiple times. He's got more on the agenda. Hey, why do you think I'm here, Link? Rhyme glanced at the beginning of his missive to the Times. He closed his word-processing program. The essay about before and after would have to wait. 8.08 a.m. A small sound from outside the window, a crunch of snow. Amelia Sachs stopped moving. She glanced out at the quiet white backyard. She saw no one. She was a half hour north of the city, 
alone in a pristine Tudor suburban house that was still as death. An appropriate thought, she reflected, since the owner of the place was no longer among the living. The sound again. Sachs was a city girl, used to the cacophony of urban noises, threatening and benign. The intrusion into the excessive suburban quiet set her on edge. Was it source of footstep? The tall, red-haired detective, wearing a black leather jacket, navy blue sweater, and black jeans, listened carefully for a moment, absently scratching her scalp. She heard another crunch, unzipped her jacket so her glock was easily accessible. Crouching, she looked outside fast, saw nothing, and returned to her task. She sat down on the luxurious leather office chair and began to examine the contents of a huge desk. This was a frustrating mission, the problem being that she didn't know exactly what she was looking for, which often happened when you searched a crime scene that was secondary or tertiary or whatever a four times removed might be called. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to call this a crime scene at all. It was unlikely that any perpetrators had ever been present, nor had any bodies been discovered here, any loot hidden. This was simply a little-used residence of a man named Benjamin Creeley, who died miles away and had not been to this house for a week before his death. Still, she had to search, and search carefully, because Amelia Sachs was not here in the role she usually worked, crime scene cop. She was the lead detective in the first homicide case of her own. Another snap outside. Ice, snow, branch, deer, squirrel. She ignored it and continued the search that had started a few weeks earlier, all thanks to a knot in a piece of cotton rope. It was this length of clothesline that had ended the life of 56-year-old Ben Creeley, found dangling from the banister of his Upper East Side townhouse. A suicide note was on the table, no signs of foul play evident. Just after the man's death, though, Suzanne Creeley, his widow, went to the NYPD. She simply didn't believe that he'd killed himself. The wealthy businessman and accountant had been moody lately, yes, but only she believed because he'd been working very long hours on some particularly difficult projects. His occasionally dour moods were a far cry from suicidal depression. He had no history of mental or emotional problems and wasn't taking antidepressants. Creeley's finances were solid. There'd been no recent changes to his will or insurance policy. His partner, Jordan Kessler, was on a business trip to a client's office in Pennsylvania. But he and Sachs had spoken briefly, and he confirmed that while Creeley had seemed depressed lately, he hadn't, Kessler believed, ever mentioned suicide. Sachs was permanently assigned to Lincoln Rhyme for crime scene work, but she wanted to do more than forensics exclusively. She'd been lobbying major cases for the chance to be lead detective on a homicide or terrorist investigation. Somebody in the big building had decided that Creeley's death warranted more looking into and gave her the case. Aside from the general consensus that Creeley wasn't suicidal, though, Sachs at first could find no evidence of foul play. But then she made a discovery. The medical examiner reported that at the time of his death, Creeley had a broken thumb. His entire right hand was in a cast, which simply wouldn't have let him tie the knot in his hangman's noose or secure the rope to the balcony railing. Sachs knew 
because she'd tried a dozen times. Impossible without using the thumb. Maybe he'd tied it before the biking accident, a week prior to his death, but it just didn't seem likely that you'd tie a noose and keep it handy, waiting for a future date to kill yourself. She decided to declare the death suspicious and opened a homicide file. But it was shaping up to be a tough case. The rule in homicides is either they're solved in the first 24 hours or it takes months to close them. What little evidence existed, the liquor bottle he'd been drinking from before he died, the note and the rope, had yielded nothing. There were no witnesses. The NYPD report was a mere half-page long. The detective who'd run the case had spent hardly any time on it, typical for suicides, and he provided Sachs with no other information. The trail to any suspects had pretty much dried up in the city, where Creeley had worked and where the family spent most of their time. All that remained in Manhattan was to interview the dead man's partner, Kessler, in more depth. Now she was searching one of the few remaining sources for leads, the Creeley suburban home at which the family spent very little time. But she was finding nothing. Sachs now sat back, staring at a recent picture of Creeley, shaking the hand of someone who appeared to be a businessman. They were on the tarmac of an airport in front of some company's private jet. Oil rigs and pipelines loomed in the background. He was smiling. He didn't look depressed. But who does in snapshots? It was then that another crunch sounded, very close, outside the window behind her. Then one more, even closer. That's no squirrel. Out came the Glock, one shiny nine-millimeter round in the chamber and thirteen underneath it. Sachs made her way quietly out the front door and circled around to the side of the house, pistol in both hands, but close to her side, never in front of you when rounding a corner where it can be knocked aside. The movies always get it wrong. A fast look. The side of the house was clear. Then she moved toward the back, placing her black boots carefully on the walkway, which was thick with ice. A pause. Listening. Yes, definitely footsteps. The person was moving hesitantly, maybe toward the back door. A pause. A step. Another pause. Ready, Sachs told herself. She eased closer to the back corner of the house, which is when her foot slid off a patch of ice. She gave a faint, involuntary gasp, hardly audible, she thought. But it was loud enough for the trespasser. She heard the pounding of feet fleeing through the backyard, crunching through the snow. Damn. In a crouch, in case it was a feint to draw her to target, she looked around the corner and lifted the Glock fast. She saw a lanky man in jeans and a thick jacket sprinting away through the snow. Hell, just hate it when they run. Sachs had been dealt a tall body and bum joints, arthritis, and the combination made running pure misery. I'm a police officer. Stop. She started sprinting after him. Sachs was on her own for the pursuit. She'd never told Westchester County Police that she was here. Any assistance would have to come through a 911 call, and she didn't have time for that. I'm not going to tell you again. Stop. No response. They raced in tandem through the large yard, then into the woods behind the house. Breathing hard, a pain below her ribs joining the agony in her knees, she moved as fast as she could, but he was pulling ahead of her. I'm going to lose him. But nature intervened. 
A branch protruding from the snow caught his shoe and he went down hard with a huge grunt that Sax heard from forty feet away. She ran up and, gasping for breath, rested the side of the glock against his neck. He stopped squirming. Don't hurt me, please. Shh. Out came the cuffs. Hands behind your back. He squinted. I didn't do anything. Hands. He did as he was told, but in an awkward way that told her he'd probably never been collared. He was younger than she'd thought. A teenager, his face dotted with acne. Don't hurt me, please. Sax caught her breath and searched him. No ID, no weapons, no drugs. Money and a set of keys. What's your name? Greg. Last name. A hesitation. Witherspoon. You live around here? He sucked in air, nodding to his right. The house there, next door to the Creeleys. How old are you? Sixteen. Why'd you run? I don't know, I was scared. Didn't you hear me say I was police? Yeah, but you don't look like a cop. A policewoman. You really are one? She showed him her ID. What were you doing at the house? I live next door. You said that. What were you doing? She pulled him up into a sitting position. He looked terrified. I saw somebody inside. I thought it was Mrs. Creeley or maybe somebody in the family or something. I, I just wanted to tell her something. Then I looked inside and saw you had a gun. I got scared. I thought you were with them. Who's them? Those guys who broke in. That's what I was going to tell Mrs. Creeley about. Broke in? I saw a couple of guys break in their house a few weeks ago. It was around Thanksgiving. Did you call the police? No, I guess I should have, but I didn't want to get involved. They looked, like, tough. Tell me what happened. I was outside in our backyard, and I, and I saw them go to the back door, look around, and kind of, you know, break the lock and go inside. White? Black? White, I think. I wasn't that close. I couldn't see their faces. They were just, you know, guys. Jeans and jackets. One was bigger than the other. Color of their hair? I don't know. How long were they inside? An hour, I guess. You see their car? No. Did they take anything? Yeah, a stereo, CDs, a TV, some games, I think. Can I stand up? Sax pulled him to his feet and marched him to the house. She noted that the back door had been jimmied. Pretty slick job, too. She looked around. A big-screen TV was still in the living room. There was lots of nice china in the cabinet. The silver was there, too, and it was sterling. The theft wasn't making sense. Had they stolen a few things as cover for something else? She examined the ground floor. The house was immaculate, except for the fireplace. It was a gas model, she noted, but inside there was a lot of ash. With gas logs, there was no need for paper or kindling. Had the burglars set a fire? Without touching anything inside, she shone her flashlight over the contents. Did you notice if those men had a fire going when they were here? I don't know. Maybe. There were also streaks of mud in front of the fireplace. She had basic crime scene equipment in the trunk of her car. She'd dust for prints around the fireplace and desk and collect the ash and mud and any other physical evidence that might be helpful. It was then that her cell phone vibrated.
She glanced at the screen. An urgent text message from Lincoln Rhyme. She was needed back in the city ASAP. She sent an acknowledging message. What had been burned, she wondered, staring at the fireplace. So, Greg said, like, uh, can I go now? Sachs looked him over. I don't know if you're aware of it, but after any death, the police conduct a complete inventory of everything in the house the day the owner dies. Yeah, he looked down. In an hour, I'm calling Westchester County Police and having them check the list against what's here now. If anything's missing, they'll call me, and I'll give them your name and call your parents. But the men didn't steal anything at all, did they? After they left, you went in through the back door and helped yourself to... what? I just borrowed a few things is all, from Todd's room, Mr. Creeley's son. Yeah, and one of the Nintendos was mine. He never returned it. The men, did they take anything? A hesitation. Didn't look like it. She undid the handcuffs. Sack said, You'll have everything back by then. Put it in the garage. I'll leave the door open. Oh, like, yeah, I promise, he said breathlessly. Definitely. Okay. He started to cry. The thing is, I ate some cake. It was in the refrigerator. I, I don't... I'll buy them another one. Sack said, They don't inventory food. They don't? Just get everything else back here. I promise, really. He wiped his face on his sleeve. The boy started to leave. She asked, One thing. When you heard that Mr. Creeley killed himself, were you surprised? Well, yeah. Why? The boy gave a laugh. He had a 740. I mean, the long one. Who's going to kill themselves they drive a BMW, right? 9.43 a.m. They were terrible ways to die. Amelia Sachs had pretty much seen it all, or so she thought, but these were as cruel means of death as she could recall. She'd spoken to Rhyme from Westchester, and he'd told her to hurry to Lower Manhattan where she was to run two scenes of homicides committed apparently hours apart by somebody calling himself the Watchmaker. Sachs had already run the simpler of the two, a pier in the Hudson River. It was a fast scene to process. There was no body, and most of the trace had been swept away or contaminated by the abrasive wind flowing along the river. She'd photographed and videoed the scene from all angles. She noted where the clock had been, troubled that the scene had been disturbed by the bomb squad when they'd collected it for testing. But there was no alternative with a possible explosive device. She collected the killer's note, too, partly crusted with blood. Then she'd taken samples of the frozen blood. She noted fingernail marks on the pier where the victim had held on, dangling above the water, then slid off. She collected a torn nail. It was wide, short, and unpolished, suggesting that the victim was a man. The killer had cut his way through the chain link protecting the pier. Sachs took a sample of the wire to check for tool marks. She found no fingerprints, footprints, or tire tread marks near the point of entry or the pool of frozen blood. No witnesses had been located. The medical examiner reported that if the victim had indeed fallen into the Hudson, as seemed likely, he would have died of hypothermia within ten minutes or so. 
NYPD divers and the Coast Guard were continuing their search for the body and any evidence in the water. Sachs was now at the second scene, the alleyway off Cedar Street near Broadway. Theodore Adams, mid-thirties, was lying on his back, duct tape gagging him and binding his ankles and wrists. The killer had looped a rope over a fire escape ten feet above him and tied one end to a heavy six-foot-long metal bar with holes in the ends like the eye of a needle. This the killer had suspended above the victim's throat. The other end of the rope he'd placed in the man's hands. Being bound, Adams couldn't slide out from under the bar. His only hope was to use all his strength to keep the massive weight suspended until someone happened along to save him. But no one had. He'd been dead for some time, and the bar had continued to compress his throat until the body froze solid in the December cold. His neck was only about an inch thick under the crushing metal. His expression was the chalky, neutral gaze of death but she could imagine how his face must have looked for the, what, ten or fifteen minutes he'd struggled to stay alive, growing red from the effort, then purple, eyes bulging. Who on earth would murder in these ways, which were obviously picked for prolonged deaths? Wearing a white Tyvek bodysuit to prevent trace from her clothes and hair from contaminating the scene, Sachs readied the evidence collection equipment as she discussed the scene with two of her colleagues in the NYPD, Nancy Simpson and Frank Reddick, officers based at the department's main crime scene facility in Queens. Nearby was their crime scene unit's rapid response vehicle, a large van filled with the essential crime scene investigation equipment. She slipped rubber bands around her feet to distinguish her prints from the perps. Another of Rhyme's ideas. But why bother? I'm in the Tyvek, Rhyme, not street shoes, Sachs had once pointed out. He looked at her wearily. Oh, excuse me. I guess a perp would never think to buy a Tyvek suit. How much do they cost, Sachs? Forty-nine ninety-five. Her first thoughts were that the killings were either organized crime hits or the work of a psychopath. O.C. clips were often staged like these to send messages to rival gangs. A sociopath, on the other hand, might set up such an elaborate killing out of delusion or for gratification, which might be sadistic, if it had a sexual motivation, or simply cruel for its own sake, apart from lust. In her years on the street, she'd learned that inflicting pain was a source of power in itself and could even be addictive. Ron Pulaski, in uniform and leather jacket, approached. The blonde NYPD patrolman, slim and young, had been helping out Sachs on the Creeley case and was on call to assist on cases that Rhyme was handling. After a bad run-in with a perp had put him in the hospital for a long stay, he'd been offered medical disability retirement. The rookie had told Sachs that he'd sat down with Jenny, his young wife, and discussed the issue. Should he go back on duty or not? Pulaski's twin brother, also a cop, provided input too and in the end he chose to undergo therapy and return to the force. Sachs and Rhyme had been impressed with his youthful zeal and pulled some strings to get him assigned to them whenever possible. He later confessed to Sachs, never to Rhyme, of course, that the criminalist's refusal to be sidelined by his quadriplegia and his aggressive regimen of daily therapy were Pulaski's main inspiration to get back on active duty. Pulaski wasn't in Tyvek, so he stopped at the yellow tape marking the scene.
Jesus, he muttered, as he stared at the grotesque sight. Pulaski told her that Salido and other officers were checking with security guards and office managers in the buildings around the alley to learn if anyone had seen or heard the attack or knew Theodore Adams. He added, The bomb squad's still checking on the clocks, and they'll deliver them to Rhymes later. I'm going to get all the license plates of the cars parked around here. Detective Salido told me to. Her back to Pulaski, Sachs nodded. But she really wasn't paying much attention to this information. It wasn't useful to her at the moment. She was about to search the scene and was trying to clear her thoughts of distractions. Despite the fact that by definition crime scene work involves inanimate objects, there's a curious intimacy to the job. To be effective, CS cops have to mentally and emotionally become the perps. The whole horrific scenario plays itself out in their imaginations. What the killer was thinking, where he stood when he lifted the gun or club or knife, how he adjusted his stance, whether he lingered to watch the victim's death throes or fled immediately, what caught his attention at the scene, what tempted and repulsed him, what was his escape route. This wasn't psychological profiling, that occasionally helpful media-chic portrait painting of suspects. This was the art of mining the huge clutter at crime scenes for those few important nuggets that could lead to a suspect's door. Sachs was doing this, becoming someone else, the killer who'd engineered this terrible end to another human being. Eyes scanning the scene, up and down, sideways, the cobblestones, the walls, the body, the iron weight. I'm him. I'm him. What do I have in mind? Why did I want to kill these Vicks? Why in these ways? Why on the pier? Why here? but the cause of death was so unusual, the killer's mind so removed from hers, that she had no answers to these questions, not yet. She pulled on her headset. Rhyme, you there? And where else would I be, he asked, sounding amused. I've been waiting. Where are you? The second scene? Yes. What are you seeing, Sax? I'm him. Alleyway, Rhyme, she said into the stock mic. It's a cul-de-sac for deliveries. It doesn't go through. The Vic's close to the street. How close? Fifteen feet out of a hundred-foot alley. How'd he get there? No sign of tread marks, but he was definitely dragged to the place he was killed. There's salt and crud on the bottom of his jacket and pants. Are there doors near the body? Yes, he's pretty much in front of one. Did he work in the building? No, I've got his business cards. He's a freelance writer. His work address is the same as his apartment. He might have had a client there or in one of the other buildings. Lon's checking now. Good. The door that's closest. Would that have been someplace the perp could have waited for him? Yeah, she replied. Have a guard open it up, and I want you to search what's on the other side. Lon Salito called from the perimeter of the scene. The witnesses. Everybody's freaking blind. Oh, and deaf, too. And there must be 40 or 50 different offices in the buildings around the alley. If anybody knew him, it may take a while to find out. Sachs relayed the criminalist's request to open the back door near the body. You got it. Salito headed off on this mission, blowing warming breath into his cupped hands. Sachs videotaped and photographed the scene. 
She looked for and found no evidence of sexual activity involving the body or nearby. She then began walking the grid, walking over every square inch of the scene twice, looking for physical evidence. Unlike many crime scene professionals, Rhyme insisted on a single searcher, except in the case of mass disasters, of course, and Sachs always walked the grid alone. But whoever committed the crime had been very careful not to leave anything obvious behind except the note and the clock, the metal bar, the duct tape, and rope. She told him this. Not really in their nature to make it easy for us, is it, Sex? His cheerful mood grated. He wasn't right next to a victim who died this lousy death. She ignored the comment and continued working the scene performing a basic processing of the corpse so it could be released to the medical examiner, collecting his effects, dusting for fingerprints and doing electrostatic prints of shoe treads, collecting trace with an adhesive roller, like the sort used for removing pet hairs. It was likely that the perp had driven here, given the weight of the bar, but there were no tread marks. The center of the alley was covered with rock salt to melt the ice, and the grains prevented good contact with the cobblestones. Then she squinted. Rhyme, something odd here. Around the body, for probably three feet around it, there's something on the ground. What do you think it is? Sachs bent down, and with a magnifier examined what seemed to be fine sand. She mentioned this to Rhyme. Was it for the ice? No, it's only around him, and there's none anywhere else in the alley. They're using salt for the snow and ice. Then she stepped back. But there's only a fine residue left. It's like, yes, Rhyme, he swept up with a broom. Swept? I can see the straw marks. It's like he scattered handfuls of sand on the scene and then swept it up. But maybe he didn't do it. There wasn't anything like this at the first scene on the pier. Is there any sand on the victim or the bar? I don't know. Wait, there is. So he did it after the killing, Rhyme said. It's probably an obscuring agent. Diligent perps would sometimes use a powdery or granular material of some kind, sand, kitty litter, or even flour, to spread on the ground after committing a crime. They'd then sweep or vacuum up the material, taking most of the trace particles with it. But why, Rhyme mused. Sachs stared at the body, stared at the cobblestone alley. I'm him. Why would I sweep? Perps often wipe fingerprints and take the obvious evidence with them, but it's very rare when someone goes to the trouble of using an obscuring agent. She closed her eyes, and as hard as it was, pictured herself standing over the young man who was struggling to keep the bar off his throat. Maybe he spilled something. But Rhyme said, doesn't seem likely. He wouldn't be that careless. She continued to think, I'm careful, sure. But why would I sweep? I'm him. Why? Rhyme whispered. He? Not he, the criminalist corrected. You're him, Sachs. Remember, you. I'm a perfectionist. I want to get rid of as much evidence as possible. True, but what you gain by sweeping up, Rhyme said, you lose by staying on the scene longer. I think there has to be another reason. 
going deeper, feeling herself lifting the bar, putting the rope in the man's hands, staring down at his struggling face, his bulging eyes. I put the clock next to his head. It's ticking, ticking. I watch him die. I leave no evidence. I sweep up. Think, Sax. What's he up to? I'm him. Then she blurted. I'm coming back, Rhyme. What? I'm coming back to the scene. I mean, he's coming back. That's why he swept up. Because he absolutely didn't want to leave anything that give us a description of him. No fibers, hairs, shoe prints, dirt in his soles. He's not afraid we'll use it to track him to his hidey hole. He's too good to be leaving trace like that. No, he's afraid we'll find something that'll help us recognize him when he comes back. Okay, that could be it. Maybe he's a voyeur, likes to watch people die, likes to watch cops at work. Or maybe he wants to see who's hunting for him, so he can start a hunt of his own. Sax felt a trickle of fear down her back. She looked around her. There was, as usual, a small crowd of gawkers standing across the street. Was the killer among them, watching her right now? Then Rhyme added, Or maybe he's already been back. He came by earlier this morning to see that the Vic was really dead, which means that he might have left some evidence somewhere else, outside the scene, on the sidewalk, the street. Exactly. Sachs slipped under the tape out of the designated crime scene and looked over the street, then the sidewalk in front of the building. There she found a half-dozen shoe prints in the snow. She had no way of knowing if any of them were the watchmakers, but several, made by wide, waffle-stomper boots, suggested that somebody, a man probably, had stood in the mouth of the alley for a few minutes, shifting weight from foot to foot. She looked around and decided there was no reason for anybody to be standing there. No payphones, mailboxes, or windows were nearby. Got some unusual boot prints here in the mouth of the alley, by the curb on Cedar Street, she told Rhyme. Large. She searched this area, too, digging into a snowbank. Got something else. What? A gold metal money clip. Her fingers stinging from the cold through the latex gloves, she counted the cash inside. It's got 340 in new 20s, right next to the boot prints. Did the Vic have any money on him? 60 bucks, also pretty fresh. Maybe the perp boosted the clip and then dropped it getting away. She placed it in an evidence bag, then finished searching other portions of the scene, finding nothing else. The back door of the office building opened. Salido and a uniformed guard from the security staff of the building were there. They stood back as Sachs processed the door itself, finding and photographing what she described to rhyme as a million fingerprints, he only chuckled, and the dim lobby on the other side. She didn't find anything obviously relevant to the murder. Suddenly, a woman's panicky voice cut through the cold air. Oh, my God! No! A stocky brunette in her thirties ran up to the yellow tape where she was stopped by a patrol officer. Her hands were at her face and she was sobbing. Salito stepped forward. Sachs joined them. Do you know him, ma'am? The big detective asked. What happened? What happened? No! Oh, God! Do you know him? The detective repeated. 
Racked with crying, the woman turned away from the terrible sight. My brother. No, is he? Oh, God, no, he can't be. She sank to her knees on the ice. This would be the woman who'd reported her brother missing last night, Sachs understood. Lon Salido had the personality of a pit bull when it came to suspects, but with victims and their relatives, he showed a surprising tenderness. In a soft voice, thickened by a Brooklyn drawl, he said, I'm so sorry. He's gone, yes. He helped her up and she leaned against the wall of the alley. Who did it? Why? Her voice rose to a screech as she stared at the terrible tableau of her brother's death. Who would do something like this? Who? We don't know, ma'am, Sack said. I'm sorry, but we'll find him. I promise you. Gasping for breath, she turned. Don't let my daughter see, please. Sachs looked past her to a car, parked half on the curb where she'd left it in her panic. In the passenger seat was a teenage girl who was staring at Sachs with a frown, her head cocked. The detective stepped in front of the body, blocking the girl's view of her uncle. The sister, whose name was Barbara Eckert, had jumped from her car without her coat and was huddling against the cold. Sachs led her through the open door into the service lobby that she'd just run. The hysterical woman asked to use the restroom, and when she emerged, she was still shaken and pale, though the crying was under control. Barbara had no idea what the killer's motive might be. Her brother, a bachelor, worked for himself, a freelance advertising copywriter. He was well-liked and had no enemies that she knew of. He wasn't involved in any romantic triangles, no jealous husbands, and had never done drugs or anything else illegal. He'd moved to the city two years earlier. That he had no apparent O.C. connection troubled Sachs. It moved the psycho factor into first place, far more dangerous to the public than a mob pro. Sachs explained how the body would be processed. It would be released by the medical examiner to the next of kin within 24 to 48 hours. Barbara's face grew stony. Why did he kill Teddy like that? What was he thinking? But that was a question for which Amelia Sachs had no answer. Watching the woman return to her car, Salido helping her, Sachs couldn't take her eyes off the daughter who was staring back at the policewoman. The look was hard to bear. The girl must know by now that this man was in fact her uncle, and he was dead, but Sachs could see what seemed to be a small bit of hope in the girl's face. Hope about to be destroyed. Hungry. Vincent Reynolds lay on his musty bed in their temporary home, which was, of all things, a former church, and felt his soul's hunger silently mimicking the grumbling of his pear-shaped belly. This old Catholic structure in a deserted area of Manhattan near the Hudson River was their base of operation for the killings. Gerald Duncan was from out of town, and Vincent's apartment was in New Jersey. Vincent had said that they could stay at his place, but Duncan had said no, they could hardly do that. They should have no contact whatsoever with their real residences. He'd sounded sort of like he was lecturing, but not in a bad way. It was like a father instructing his son. A church? Vincent had asked. Why? Because it's been on the market for fourteen and a half months. Not a hot property. And nobody's going to be showing it this time of year. A fast look at Vincent.
Don't worry. It's desanctified. It is? asked Vincent, who figured that he'd committed enough sins to be guaranteed a direct route to hell if there was one. Trespassing in a church, sanctified or D, was the very least of his offenses. The real estate agent kept the doors locked, of course, but a watchmaker's skills are essentially those of a locksmith. The first clockmakers, Duncan had explained, were locksmiths. And the man easily picked one of the back door locks, then fitted it with a padlock of his own, so they could come and go, unseen by anyone on the street or sidewalk. He changed the lock on the front door, too, and left a bit of wax on it, so they'd know if anybody tried to get in when they were away. The place was gloomy and drafty and smelled of cheap cleansers. Duncan's room was the former priest's bedroom on the second floor in the rectory portion of the structure. Across the hall was Vincent's room, where he was now lying, the old office. It contained a cot, table, hot plate, microwave, and refrigerator. Hungry Vincent, of course, got the kitchen, such as it was. The church still had electricity in case brokers needed the lights, and the heat was on so the pipes wouldn't burst, though the thermostat was set very low. When he'd first seen it, knowing Duncan's obsession with time, Vincent had said, Too bad there's no clock tower, like Big Ben. That's the name of the bell, not the clock. On the Tower of London? In the clock tower, the older man had corrected again. At the Palace of Westminster, where Parliament sits, named after Sir Benjamin Hall. In the late 1850s, it was England's largest bell. In early clocks, the bells were the only thing that told you the time. There were no faces or hands. Oh! The word clock comes from the Latin cloca, which means bell. This man knew everything. Vincent liked that. He liked a lot of things about Gerald Duncan. He'd been wondering if these two misfits could become real friends. Vincent didn't have many friends. He'd sometimes go out for drinks with the paralegals and other word-processing operators, but even clever Vincent tended not to say too much because he was afraid he'd let slip the wrong thing about a waitress or the woman sitting at a table nearby. Hunger made you careless. Just look at what had happened with Sally Ann. Vincent and Duncan were opposites in many ways, but they had one thing in common. Dark secrets in their hearts. And anyone who's ever shared that knows it makes up for vast differences in lifestyle and politics. Oh, yes. Vincent was definitely going to give their friendship a shot. He now washed up, again thinking of Joanne, the brunette they'd be visiting today, the flower girl, their next victim. Vincent opened the small refrigerator. He took out a bagel and cut it in half with his hunting knife. It had an eight-inch blade and was very sharp. He smeared cream cheese on the bagel and ate it while he drank two Cokes. His nose stung from the chill. Meticulous Gerald Duncan insisted that they wear gloves here, too, which was kind of a pain, but today, because it was so cold, Vincent didn't mind. He lay back on the bed, imagining what Joanne's body looked like. Later today feeling hungry, starving to death. His gut was drying up from the craving. If he didn't have his little heart-to-heart -heart with Joanne pretty soon, he'd waste away to steam. Now he drank a can of Dr. Pepper, ate a bag of potato chips, then some pretzels. 
starving, hungry. Vincent Reynolds would not on his own have come up with the idea that the urge to sexually assault women was a hunger. That idea was courtesy of his therapist, Dr. Jenkins. When he was in detention because of Sally Ann, the only time he'd been arrested, the doctor had explained that he had to accept that the urges he felt would never go away. You can't get rid of them. They're a hunger in a way. Now, what do we know about hunger? It's natural. We can't help feeling hungry. Don't you agree? Yes, sir. The therapist had added that even though you couldn't stop hunger completely, you could satisfy it appropriately. You understand what I mean? With food, you'd have a healthy meal when it's the appropriate time. You don't just snack. With people, you have a healthy, committed relationship, leading up to marriage and a family. I get it. Good. I think we're making progress. Don't you agree? And the boy had taken great heart in the man's message, though it translated into something a little different from what the good doctor intended. Vincent reasoned that he'd use the hunger analogy as a helpful guide. He'd only eat, that is, have a little heart-to-heart -heart with a girl, when he really needed to. That way he wouldn't become desperate and careless, the way he had with Sally Ann. Brilliant. Don't you agree, Dr. Jenkins? Vincent finished the pretzels and soda and wrote another letter to his sister. Clever Vincent drew a few cartoons in the margins, pictures he thought she might like. Vincent wasn't a terrible artist. There was a knock on his door. Come in. Gerald Duncan pushed the door open. The men said good morning to each other. Vincent glanced into Duncan's room, which was perfectly ordered. Everything on the desk was arranged in a symmetrical pattern. The clothes were pressed and hanging in the closet exactly two inches apart. This could be one hurdle to their friendship. Vincent was a slob. You want something to eat? Vincent asked. No, thanks. That's why the watchmaker was so skinny. He rarely ate. He was never hungry. That could be another hurdle. But Vincent decided he'd ignore that fault. After all... Vincent's sister never ate much either, and he still loved her. The killer made coffee for himself. While the water was heating, he took the jar of beans out of the refrigerator and measured out exactly two spoons worth. These clattered as he poured them into the hand grinder and turned the handle a dozen times until the noise stopped. He carefully poured the grounds into a paper cone filter inside a drip funnel. He tapped it to make sure the grounds were level. Vincent loved watching Gerald Duncan make coffee. Meticulous. Duncan looked at his gold pocket watch. He wound the stem very carefully. He finished the coffee. He drank it fast like medicine and then looked at Vincent. Our flower girl, he said. Joanne, will you go check on her? A thud in his gut. So long, clever Vincent. Sure. I'm going to the alley on Cedar Street. The police will be there by now. I want to see whom we're up against. Whom? Duncan pulled his jacket on and slung his bag over his shoulder. You ready? Vincent nodded and donned his cream-colored parka, hat, and sunglasses. Duncan was saying, 
Let me know if people are coming by the workshop to pick up orders or if she's working alone. The watchmaker had learned that Joanne spent a lot of time in her workshop a few blocks away from her retail flower store. The workshop was quiet and dark. Picturing the woman, her curly brown hair, her long but pretty face, hungry Vincent couldn't get her out of his mind. They walked downstairs and into the alley behind the church. Duncan hooked the padlock. He said, Oh, I wanted to say something. The one for tomorrow. She's a woman, too. That'd be two in a row. I don't know how often you like to have your, what do you call it, a heart-to-heart? That's right. Why do you say that? Duncan asked. The killer, Vincent had learned, had a tireless curiosity. That phrase, too, came from Dr. Jenkins, his buddy, the detention center doc, who'd tell him to come to his office any time he wanted to and talk about how he was feeling. They'd have themselves a good old heart-to-heart. For some reason, Vincent liked the words. The phrase also sounded a lot better than rape. I don't know. I just do. He added that he'd have no problem with two women in a row. Sometimes eating makes you even hungrier, Dr. Jenkins. Don't you agree? As they stepped carefully over the icy patches on the sidewalk, Vincent asked, Um, what are you going to do with Joanne? In killing his victims, Duncan had one rule. Their deaths could not be quick. This wasn't as easy as it sounded. He'd explained in that precise, detached voice of his. Duncan had a book titled Extreme Interrogation Techniques. It was about terrifying prisoners into talking by subjecting them to tortures that would eventually kill them if they didn't confess, putting weights over their throats, cutting their wrists and letting them bleed, a dozen others. Duncan explained, I don't want to take too long, in her case. I'll gag her and tie her hands behind her, then get her on her stomach and wrap a wire around her neck and her ankles. Her knees'll be bent? Vincent could picture it. That's right. It was in the book. Did you see the illustrations? Vincent shook his head. She won't be able to keep her legs bent at that angle for very long. When they start to straighten, it pulls the wire around her neck taut, and she'll strangle herself. It'll take about eight, ten minutes, I'd guess. He smiled. I'm going to time it. As you suggested, when it's over, I'll call you, and she's all yours. A good old heart-to-heart. They stepped out of the alley as a blast of freezing wind struck them. Vincent's parka, which was unzipped, blew open. He stopped, alarmed. On the sidewalk a few feet away was a young man. He had a scrawny beard and wore a threadbare jacket. A backpack was slung over his shoulder. A student, Vincent guessed. Head down, he kept walking briskly. Duncan glanced at his partner. What's the matter? Vincent nodded at his side, where the hunting knife in a scabbard was stuck in his waistband. I think he saw it. I'm, I'm sorry. I should have zipped my jacket, but... Duncan's lips pressed together. No, no, Vincent hoped he hadn't made Duncan unhappy. I'll go take care of him if you want. I'll... The killer looked toward the student who was walking quickly away from them. Duncan turned to Vincent. 
Have you ever killed anyone? He couldn't hold the man's piercing blue eyes. No. Wait here. Gerald Duncan studied the street, which was deserted except for the student. He reached into his pocket and took out the box cutter he'd used to slash the wrists of the man on the pier last night. Duncan walked quickly after the student. Vincent watched him catching up until the killer was only a few feet behind him. They turned the corner, heading east. This was terrible. Vincent hadn't been meticulous. He'd put everything at risk, his chance for friendship with Duncan, his chance for the heart-to-hearts. All because he'd been careless. He wanted to scream. He wanted to cry. He reached into his pocket, found a Kit Kat, and wolfed it down, eating some of the wrapper with the candy. Five agonizing minutes later, Duncan returned, holding a wrinkled newspaper. I'm sorry, Vincent said. It's all right. It's okay. Duncan's voice was soft. Inside the paper was the bloody box cutter. He wiped the blade with the paper and retracted the razor blade. He threw away the bloody paper and gloves. He put a new pair on. He insisted they carry two or three pairs with them at all times. The body's in a dumpster. I covered it up with trash. If we're lucky, it'll be in a landfill or out to sea before somebody notices the blood. Are you all right? Vincent thought there was a red mark on Duncan's cheek. The man shrugged. I got careless. He fought back. I had to slash his eyes. Remember that. If somebody resists, slash their eyes. That stops them resisting right away, and you can control them however you want. Slash their eyes. Vincent nodded slowly. Duncan asked, You'll be more careful? Oh, yes. Promise. Really? Now go check on the flower girl and meet me at the museum at quarter past four. Okay, sure. Duncan turned his light blue eyes on Vincent. He gave a rare smile. Don't be upset. There was a problem. It's been taken care of. In the great scheme of things, it was nothing. Ten fifty-eight a.m. The body of Teddy Adams was gone, the grieving relatives too. Lon Salito had just left for Rhymes and the scene was officially released. Ron Pulaski, Nancy Simpson, and Frank Reddick were removing the crime scene tape. Still stung by the look of desperate hope in the face of Adams's young niece, Amelia Sachs had gone over the scene yet again with even more diligence than usual. She checked other doorways and possible entrance and escape routes the perp might have used, but she found nothing else. She didn't remember the last time a complicated crime like this had yielded so little evidence. After packing up her equipment, she mentally shifted back to the Benjamin Creeley case and called the man's wife, Suzanne, to tell her that several men had broken into their Westchester house. I didn't know that. Do you have any idea what they stole? Sachs had met the woman several times, she was very thin, she jogged daily, and had short, frosted hair, a pretty face. It didn't look like much was missing. She decided to say nothing about the neighbor boy, 
she figured she'd scared him into going straight. Sachs asked if anyone would have been burning something in the fireplace, and Suzanne replied that no one had even been to the house recently. What do you think was going on? I don't know, but it's making the suicide look more doubtful. Oh, by the way, you need a new lock on your back door. I'll call somebody today. Thank you, detective. It means a lot that you believe me about Ben not killing himself. After they hung up, Sachs filled out a request for analysis of the ash, mud, and other evidence at the Creeley's house and packed these materials separately from the watchmaker evidence. She then completed the chain of custody cards and helped Simpson and Reddick pack up the van. It took two of them to wrap the heavy metal barn plastic and stow it. She was just swinging shut the van's door when she glanced up across the street. The cold had driven off most of the spectators, but she noted a man standing with a post in front of an old building being renovated on Cedar Street near Chase Plaza. That's not right, Sachs thought. Nobody stands on the street corner and reads a newspaper in this weather. If you're worried about the stock market or curious about a recent disaster, you flip through quickly, find out how much money you lost or how far the church bus plummeted, and then keep on walking. But you don't just stand in the windy street for page six gossip. She couldn't see the man clearly. He was partially hidden behind the newspaper in a pile of debris from the construction site. But one thing was obvious. His boots. They'd have a traction tread which could have left the distinctive impressions she found in the snow at the mouth of the alley. Sachs debated. Most of the other officers had left. Simpson and Reddick were armed, but not tactically trained, and the suspect was on the other side of a three-foot-high metal barricade set up for an upcoming parade. He could escape easily if she approached him from where she was now across the street. She'd have to handle the takedown more subtly. She walked up to Pulaski, whispered, there's somebody at your six o'clock. I want to talk to him. Guy with the paper. The perp, he asked. Don't know. Maybe. Here's what we're going to do. I'm getting into the RRV with the CS team. They're going to drop me at the corner to the east. Can you drive a manual? Sure. She gave him the keys to her bright red Camaro. You drive west on Cedar toward Broadway, maybe 40 feet. Stop fast, get out and vault the barricade, come back this way. Flush him. Right. If he's just out reading the paper, we'll have a talk, check his ID, and get back to work. If not, I'm guessing he'll turn and run right into my arms. You come up behind and cover me. Got it. Sachs made a show of taking a last look around the scene and then climbed into the big brown RRV van. She leaned forward. We've got a problem. Nancy Simpson and Frank Reddy glanced toward her. Simpson unzipped her jacket and put her hand on the grip of her pistol. No, don't need that. I'll tell you what's going down. She explained the situation, then said to Simpson, who was behind the wheel, Head east. At the light, make a left. Just slow up. I'll jump out. Pulaski climbed into the Camaro, fired it up, and couldn't resist pumping the gas to get a sexy whine out of the tubey exhausts. Reddick asked, you don't want us to stop? No, just slow up. I want the suspect to be sure I'm leaving. Okay, Simpson said, you got it. The RRV headed east. In the side view mirror, Sachs saw Pulaski start forward. 
Easy, she told him silently. It was a monster engine and the clutch gripped like Velcro. But he controlled the horses and rolled forward smoothly, the opposite direction from the van. At the intersection of Cedar and Nassau, the RRV turned and Sachs opened the door. Keep going. Don't slow up. Simpson did a great job keeping the van steady. Good luck, the crime scene officer called. Sachs leapt out. Whoa, a little faster than she'd planned. She nearly stumbled, caught herself, and thanked the Department of Sanitation for the generous sprinkling of salt on the icy street. She started along the sidewalk, coming up behind the man with the newspaper. He didn't see her. A block away. Then a half block. She opened her jacket and gripped the Glock that rode high on her belt. About fifty feet past the suspect, Pulaski suddenly pulled to the curb, climbed out, and without the guys noticing, easily jumped over the barricade. They had him sandwiched in, separated by a barrier on one side and the building being renovated on the other. A good plan. Except for one glitch. Across the street from Sachs were two armed guards stationed in front of the Housing and Urban Development Building. They'd been helping with the crime scene, and one of them glanced at Sachs. He waved to her, calling, Forget something, detective? The man with the newspaper whirled around and saw her. He dropped the paper, jumped the barrier, and sprinted as fast as he could down the middle of the street toward Broadway, catching Pulaski on the other side of the metal fence. The rookie tried to leap it, caught his foot, and went down hard in the street. Sachs paused, but saw he wasn't badly hurt, and she continued after the suspect. Pulaski rolled to his feet, and together they sprinted after the man, who had a thirty-foot head start and was increasing his lead. She grabbed her walkie-talkie and pressed transmit. Detective 5885, she gasped, in foot pursuit of a suspect in that homicide near Cedar Street. Suspect is heading west on Cedar. Wait, no, south on Broadway. Need backup. Roger, 5885, directing units to your location. Several other RMPs, radio mobile patrols, squad cars, responded that they were nearby and en route to cut off the suspect's escape. As Sachs and Pulaski approached Battery Park, the man suddenly stopped, nearly stumbling. He glanced to his right, at the subway. No, not the train, she thought. Too many bystanders in close proximity. Don't do it. Another glance over his shoulder, and he plunged down the stairs. She stopped, calling to Pulaski. Go after him. A deep breath. If he shoots, check your backdrop real carefully. Let him go rather than fire if there's any doubt at all. His face uneasy, the rookie nodded. Sax knew he'd never been in a firefight. He called, Where are you? Just go, she shouted. The rookie took a breath and started sprinting again. Sax ran to the subway entrance and watched Pulaski descend three steps at a time. Then she crossed the street and trotted a half block south. She drew her gun and stepped behind a newsstand, counting down four, three, two, one. She stepped out, turning to the subway exit just as the suspect sprinted up the stairs. She trained the gun on him. Don't move. Passersby were screaming and dropping to the ground. The suspect's reaction, though, was simply disgust presumably that his trick hadn't worked. Sachs had thought he might be coming this way. The surprise in his eyes when he saw the subway could have been phony, she decided. 
It told her that maybe he'd been making for the station all along, as a possible feint. He raised his hands lethargically. On the ground, face down. Come on, I... Now, she snapped. He glanced at her gun and then complied. Winded from the run, her joints in pain, she dropped a knee into the middle of his back to cuff him. He winced. Sachs didn't care. She was just in one of those moods. They got a suspect at the scene. Lincoln Rhyme and the man who delivered this interesting news were sitting in his lab. Dennis Baker, fortyish, compact, and handsome, was a supervisory lieutenant in major cases, Salito's division, and had been ordered by City Hall to make sure the watchmaker was stopped as fast as possible. He'd been one of those who'd insisted that Salito get Rhyme and Sachs on the case. Rhyme lifted an eyebrow. Suspect? Criminals often did return to the scene of the crime for various reasons, and Rhyme wondered if Sachs had actually collared the killer. Baker turned back to his cell phone, listening and nodding. The lieutenant, who bore an uncanny resemblance to the actor George Clooney, had that focused, humorless quality that makes for an excellent police administrator but a tedious drinking buddy. He's a good guy to have on your side, Salito had said of Baker just before the man arrived from one police plaza. Fine, but is he going to meddle? Rhyme had asked the rumpled detective. Not so as you'd notice. Meaning? He wants a big win under his belt and he thinks you can deliver it. He'll give you all the slack and support you need. Which was good, because they were down some manpower. There was another NYPD detective who often worked with them, Roland Bell, a transplant from the South. The detective had an easy-going manner, very different from Rhymes, though an equally methodical nature. Bell was on vacation with his two sons down in North Carolina visiting his girlfriend, a local sheriff in the Tar Heel State. They also often worked with an FBI agent, renowned for his anti-terrorism and undercover work, Fred Del Rey. Murders of this sort aren't usually federal crimes, but Del Rey often helped Salido and Rhyme on homicides and would make the resources of the Bureau available without the typical red tape. But the feds had their hands full, with several massive Enron-style corporate fraud investigations that were just getting underway. Delray was stuck on one of these. Hence, Baker's presence, not to mention his influence at the big building, was a godsend. Salito now disconnected his cell phone call and explained that Sachs was interviewing the suspect at the moment, though he wasn't being very cooperative. Salito was sitting next to Mel Cooper, the slightly built ballroom dancing forensic technician that Rhyme insisted on using. Cooper suffered for his brilliance as a crime scene lab man. Rhyme called him at all hours to run the technical side of his cases. He'd hesitated a bit when Rhyme called him at the lab in Queens that morning, explaining that he'd planned to take his girlfriend and his mother to Florida for the weekend. Rhyme's response was, All the more incentive to get here as soon as possible, wouldn't you say? I'll be there in a half hour. He was now at an examination table in the lab, awaiting the evidence. With a latex-gloved hand, he fed some biscuits to Jackson. The dog was curled up at his feet. If there's any canine hair contamination, Rhyme grumbled, I won't be happy. He's pretty cute, Cooper said, swapping gloves. The criminalist grunted. Cute was not a word that figured in the Lincoln Rhyme Dictionary. Salito's phone rang again and he took the call, then disconnected. 
The Vic at the pier. Coast Guard and our divers haven't found any bodies yet. Still checking missing persons reports. Just then, crime scene arrived, and Tom helped an officer cart in the evidence from the scenes Sachs had just run. About time. Baker and Cooper lugged in a heavy, plastic-wrapped metal bar. The murder weapon in the alleyway killing. The CS officer handed over chain of custody cards, which Cooper signed. The man said goodbye, but Rhyme didn't acknowledge him. The criminalist was looking at the evidence. This was the moment that he lived for. After the spinal cord accident, his passion, really an addiction, for the sport of going one-on-one with perps, continued undiminished, and the evidence from crimes was the field on which this game was played. He felt eager anticipation. And guilt, too. Because he wouldn't be filled with this exhilaration if not for someone else's loss, the victim on the pier and Theodore Adams, their families and friends. Oh, he felt sympathy for their sorrow, sure, but he was able to wrap up the sense of tragedy and put it somewhere. Some people called him cold, insensitive, and he supposed he was. But those who excel in a field do so because a number of disparate traits happen to come together within them. And Rhyme's sharp mind and relentless drive and impatience happen to coincide with the emotional distance that is a necessary attribute of the best criminalists. He was squinting, gazing at the boxes when Ron Pulaski arrived. Rhyme had first met him when the young men had been on the force only a short time. Although that was earlier ago, and Pulaski was a family man with two children, Rhyme couldn't stop thinking of him as the rookie. Some nicknames you just can't shake. Rhyme announced, I know Amelia has somebody in custody, but in case it isn't the perp, I don't want to lose time. He turned to Pulaski. Give me the lay of the land. First scene, the pier. All right, he began uneasily. The pier is located approximately at 22nd Street in the Hudson River. It extends into the river 52 feet at a height of 18 feet above the surface of the water. The murder... So they've recovered the body? I don't think so. Then you meant apparent murder. Right, yes, sir. The apparent murder occurred at the far end of the pier, that is, the west end, sometime between six last night and six this morning. The dock was closed then. There was very little evidence. Just the fingernail, probably a man's, the blood which Mel Cooper tested and found to be human in type AB positive, which meant that both A and B antigens, proteins, were present in the victim's plasma, and neither anti-A nor anti-B antigens were. In addition, a separate protein, RH, was present. The combination of AB antigens and RH positive made the victims the third rarest blood type, accounting for about 3.5% of the population. Further tests confirmed that the victim was a male. In addition, they concluded that he was probably older and had coronary problems since he was taking an anticoagulant, a blood thinner. There were no traces of other drugs or indications of infection or disease in the blood. There were no fingerprints, trace, or footprints at the scene, and no tire tread marks nearby, other than those left by employees' vehicles. Sachs had collected a piece of the chain link, and Cooper examined the cut edges, learning that the perp had used what seemed to be standard wire cutters to get through the fence. 
The team could match these marks with those made by a tool if they found one, but there was no way to trace the cutter back to its source by the impressions alone. Rhyme looked over the pictures of the scene, particularly the pattern the blood had made as it flowed onto the pier. He guessed that the victim had been hanging over the edge of the deck at chest level, his fingers desperately wedged into the space between the planks. The fingernail marks showed that eventually he'd lost his grip. Rhyme wondered how long the Vic had been able to hang on. He nodded slowly. Tell me about the next scene, Pulaski replied. All right. That homicide occurred in an alley off Cedar Street near Broadway. This alley featured a dead end. It was 15 feet wide and 104 feet long and was surfaced with cobblestones. The body, Rhyme recalled, was 15 feet from the mouth of the alley. What's the time of death? At least eight hours before he was found, the M.E. tour doc said. The body was frozen solid, so it'll take a while to determine with any certainty. The young officer suffered from the habit of cop speak. Amelia told me about the service and fire doors in the alley. Did anybody ask what time they were locked for the night? Three of the buildings are commercial. Two of them locked their service doors at 8.30 and one at 10. The other's a government administration building. That door's locked at 6. There's a late-night garbage pickup at 10. Body discovered when? Around 7 a.m. Okay, the Vic in the alley was dead at least eight hours. Last door was locked at 10 and garbage picked up then. So the killing took place between, say, 10.15 and 11 p.m. Parking situation? I got the license plates of every car in a two-block radius. Pulaski was holding up a Moby Dick of a notebook. What the hell's that? Oh, I wrote down notes about all the cars. Thought it might be helpful. You know, where they were parked, anything suspicious about them. Waste of time. We just needed the tag numbers for names and addresses, Rhyme explained. To cross-check DMV with NCIC and the other databases. We don't care who needed body work or had bald tires or a crack pipe in the back seat. Well, did you? What? Run the tags. Not yet. Cooper went online but found no warrants on any of the registered owners of the cars. At Rhyme's instruction, he also checked to see if any parking tickets were issued in that area around the time of the killing. There were none. Mel, run the Vic's name. Warrants, anything else about him? There were no state warrants on Theodore Adams, and Pulaski recounted what his sister had said about him, that he apparently had no enemies or personal life issues that might result in his murder. Why these Vicks, though? Rhyme asked. Are they random? I know Delray's busy, but this is important. Give him a call and have him run Adams' name. See if the feds have anything on him. Salito made a call to the federal building and got through to Delray, who was in a bad mood because of the goddamn quagmire of a financial fraud case he'd been assigned. Still, he managed to look through the federal databases and active case files but the results were negative on Theodore Adams. Okay, Rhyme announced. Until we find something else, let's assume they're random victims of a crazy man. He squinted at the pictures. Where the hell are the clocks? A call to the bomb squad revealed that they'd been cleared of any bio or toxic threat and were on their way to Rhyme's right now. The cash in the faux gold money clip appeared fresh out of an ATM machine. The bills were clean, but Cooper found some good prints on the clip. 
Unfortunately, when he ran them through IAFIS, the FBI's integrated automated fingerprint identification system, there were no hits. The few prints on the cash in Adams's pocket came back negative as well, and the serial numbers revealed the bills hadn't been flagged by the Treasury Department for possible involvement in money laundering or other crimes. The sand, Rhyme asked, referring to the obscuring agent. Generic, Cooper called, not looking up from the microscope. Sort used in playgrounds rather than construction. I'll check it for other trace. And no sand at the pier, Rhyme recalled Sachs telling him. Was that because, as she'd speculated, the perp was planning to return to the alley? Or simply because the substance wasn't needed on the pier, where the brutal wind from the Hudson would sweep the scene clean? What about the span? Rhyme asked. The what? The bar the Vic's neck was crushed with. It's a needle-eye span. Rhyme had made a study of construction materials in the city, since a popular way to dispose of bodies was to dump them at job sites. Cooper and Salida weighed the length of metal, it was 81 pounds, and got it onto the examining table. The span was about six feet long, an inch wide, and three inches high. A hole was drilled in each end. They're used mostly in shipbuilding, heavy equipment, cranes, antennas, and bridges. That's got to be the heaviest murder weapon I've ever seen, Cooper said. Heavier than a suburban, asked Lincoln Rhyme, the man for whom precision was everything. He was referring to the case of the wife who'd run over her philandering husband with a very large SUV in the middle of Third Avenue several months earlier. Oh, that, his cheating heart, Cooper sang in a squeaky tenor. Then he tested for fingerprints and found none. He filed off some shavings from the rod. Probably iron. I see evidence of oxidation. A chemical test revealed that this was the case. No identifying markings? Nope. Rhyme grimaced. That's a problem. There have got to be 50 sources in the metro area. Wait. Amelia said there was some construction nearby. Oh, Pulaski said. She had me check there, and they weren't using any metal bars like that. I forgot to mention it. You forgot, Rhyme muttered. Well, I know the city's doing some major work on the Queensboro Bridge. Let's give them a try. Rhyme said to Pulaski, Call the work crew at the Queensboro and find out if spans are being used there, and if so, are any missing. The rookie nodded and pulled out his mobile phone. Cooper looked over the analysis of the sand. Okay, got something here. Thallium sulfate. What's that? Salito asked. Rodent poison, said Rhyme. It's banned in this country, but you sometimes find it in immigrant communities or in buildings where immigrants work. How concentrated? Very. There's none in the controlled soil and residue that Amelia collected, which means it's probably from someplace the perp's been. Maybe he's planning to kill somebody with it, Pulaski suggested as he waited on hold. Rhyme shook his head. Not likely. It's not easy to administer and you need a high dosage for humans. But it could lead us to him. Find out if there have been any recent confiscations or environmental agency complaints in the city. Cooper made the calls. Let's look at the duct tape, Rhyme instructed. The tech examined the rectangles of shiny gray tape, which had been used to bind the victim's hands and feet and gag him. He announced that the tape was generic, sold in thousands of home improvement, drug, and grocery stores around the country. Testing the adhesive on the tape revealed very little trace, just a few grains of snow removal salt, which matched the samples Sachs had taken from the general area, 
and the sand that the watchmaker had spread to help him clean up trace. Disappointed that the duct tape wasn't more helpful, Rhyme turned to the photo Sax had shot of Adams's body. Then he wheeled closer to the examination table and peered at the screen. Look at the edges of the tape. Interesting, Cooper said, glancing from the digital photos to the tape itself. What had struck the men as odd was that the pieces of tape had been cut with extreme precision and applied very carefully. Usually it was just torn off the roll, sometimes ripped by the attacker's teeth, which often left DNA-laden saliva, and wrapped sloppily around the victim's hands, ankles, and mouth. But the strips used by the watchmaker were perfectly cut with a sharp object. The lengths were identical. Ron Pulaski hung up, then announced, They don't use needle-eye spans on the work they're doing now on the bridge. Well, Rhyme hadn't expected easy answers. And the rope he was holding on to? Cooper looked it over, examined some databases. He shook his head. Generic. Rhyme nodded at several whiteboards that stood empty in the corner of the lab. Start our charts. You, Ron, you have good handwriting? It's good enough. That's all we need. Right. When running cases, Rhyme kept charts of all the evidence they found. They were like crystal balls to him. He'd stare at the words and photos and diagrams to try to understand who the perp might be, where he was hiding, where he was going to strike next. Gazing at his evidence boards was the closest Lincoln Rhyme ever came to meditating. We'll use his name as the heading since he was so courteous to let us know what he wants to be called, the Watchmaker. As Pulaski wrote what Rhyme dictated, Cooper picked up a tube containing a tiny sample of what seemed to be soil. He looked it over through the microscope, starting on four times power. The number one rule with optical scopes is to start low. If you go right to higher magnifications, you'll end up looking at artistically interesting but forensically useless abstract images. Looks like your basic soil. I'll see what else is in it. He prepared a sample for the chromatograph mass spectrometer, a large instrument that separates and identifies substances in trace evidence. When the results were ready, Cooper looked over the computer screen and announced, Okay, we've got some oils, nitrogen, urea, chloride, and protein. Let me run the profile. A moment later, his computer filled with additional information. Fish protein. So maybe the perp works in a fish restaurant, Pulaski said enthusiastically, or a fish stand in Chinatown, or wait, maybe the fish counter at a grocery store. Rhyme asked, Ron, you ever hear a public speaker say, before I begin, I'd like to say something? Um, I think, which is a little odd, because if he's talking, he's already begun, right? Pulaski lifted an eyebrow. My point is that in analyzing the evidence, you do something before you start. Which is what? Find out where the evidence came from. Now, where did Sachs collect the fish protein dirt? He looked at the tag. Oh. Where is O? Inside the victim's jacket. So whom does the evidence tell us something about? The victim not the perp. Exactly. Is it helpful to know that he has it in his jacket, not on? Who knows? Maybe it will be. 
But the important point is to not blindly send the troops to every fishmonger in the city too fast. You comfortable with that theory, Ron? Real comfortable. I'm so pleased. Write down the fishy soil under the victim's profile and let's get on with it, shall we? When's the medical examiner sending us a report? Cooper said, could be a while, coming up on Christmas time. Salito sang, "'Tis the season to be killing.' Pulaski gave a frown. Rhyme explained to him. "'The deadliest times of the year are hot spells and holidays. Remember, Ron, stress doesn't kill people. People kill people, but stress makes him do it.' "'Got fibers here, brown,' Cooper announced. He glanced at the notes attached to the bag. "'Back heel of the victim's shoe and his wristwatch band. "'What kind of fibers?' Cooper examined them closely and ran the profile through the FBI's fiber database. Automotive, it looks like. Makes sense he'd have a car. You can't really carry an 81-pound iron bar around on the subway. So our watchmaker parked in the front part of the alley and dragged the Vic to his resting place. What can we tell about the vehicle? Not much, as it turned out. The fiber was from carpet used in more than 40 models of cars, trucks, and SUVs. As for tread marks, the part of the alley where he'd parked was covered with salt, which had interfered with the tire's contact with the cobblestones and prevented the transfer of tread marks. A big zero in the vehicle department. Well, let's look at his love note. Cooper slipped the white sheet of paper out of a plastic envelope. The full cold moon is in the sky, shining on the corpse of Earth, signifying the hour to die and end the journey begun at birth. The watchmaker. Is it? Rhyme asked. Is it what? Pulaski asked, as if he'd missed something. The full moon. Obviously. Today. Pulaski flipped through Rhyme's New York Times. Yep. Full. What's he mean by the cold moon in caps? Dennis Baker asked. Cooper did some searching on the internet. Okay. It's a month in the lunar calendar. We use the solar calendar 365 days a year based on the sun. The lunar calendar marks time from new moon to new moon. The names of the months describe the cycle of our lives from birth to death. They're named according to milestones in the year. The strawberry moon in the spring, the harvest moon and hunter moon in the fall. The cold moon is in December, the month of hibernation and death. As Rhyme had noted earlier, Killers referencing the moon or astrological themes tended to be serial perps. There was some literature suggesting that people were actually motivated by the moon to commit crimes, but Rhyme believed that was simply the influence of suggestion, like the increase in alien abduction reports just after Steven Spielberg's film Close Encounters of the Third Kind was released. Run the name Watchmaker through the databases along with Cold Moon. Oh, and the other lunar months, too. After ten minutes of searching through the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program and the National Crime Information Center, as well as state databases, they had no hits. Rhyme asked Cooper to find out where the poem itself had come from, but he found nothing even close in dozens of poetry websites. The tech also called a professor of literature at New York University, a man who helped them on occasion. He'd never heard of it. And the poem was either too obscure to turn up in a search engine, or more likely, it was the watchmaker's own creation. 
Cooper said, As for the note itself, it's generic paper from a computer printer. Hewlett-Packard laser jet ink, nothing distinctive. Rhyme shook his head, frustrated at the absence of leads. If the watchmaker was in fact a cyclical killer, he could be somewhere right now, checking out or even murdering his next victim. A moment later, Amelia Sachs arrived, pulled off her jacket. She was introduced to Dennis Baker, who told her he was glad she was on the case. Her reputation preceded her, the wedding ring free cop added, smiling a bit of flirt her way. Sachs responded with a brisk professional handshake, all in a day's work for a woman on the force. Rhyme briefed her on what they'd learned from the evidence so far. Not much, she muttered. He's good. What's the story on the suspect? Baker asked. Sachs nodded toward the door. He'll be here in a minute. He took off when we tried to get him, but I don't think he's our boy. I checked him out. Married, been a broker with the same firm for five years, no warrants. I don't even think he could carry it. She nodded at the iron span. There was a knock on the door. Behind her, two uniformed officers brought in an unhappy-looking man in handcuffs. Ari Cobb was in his mid-thirties, good-looking in a dime-a-dozen businessman way. The slightly built man was wearing a nice coat, probably cashmere, though it was stained with what looked like street sludge, presumably from his arrest. What's the story? Salito asked them gruffly. As I told her, a cool nod toward Sachs, I was just walking to the subway on Cedar Street last night and I dropped some money. That's it right there. He nodded toward the bills and money clip. This morning I realized what happened and came back to look for it. I saw the police there. I don't know, I just didn't want to get involved. I'm a broker. I have clients who are real sensitive about publicity. It could hurt my business. It was only then that the man seemed to realize that Rhyme was in a wheelchair. He blinked once, got over it, and resumed his indignant visage once more. A search of his clothing found none of the fine-grained sand, blood, or other trace to link him to the killings. Like Sachs, Rhyme doubted this was the watchmaker, but given the gravity of the crimes, he wasn't going to be careless. Print him, Rhyme ordered. Cooper did so and found that the friction ridges on the money clip were his. A check of DMV revealed that Cobb didn't own a car, and a call to his credit card companies showed that he hadn't rented one recently using his plastic. When did you drop the money? Salito asked. He explained that he'd left work about 7.30 the previous night. He'd had some drinks with friends, then left about 9 and walked to the subway. He remembered pulling a subway pass out of his pocket when he was walking along Cedar, which was probably when he lost the clip. He continued on to the station and returned home, the Upper East Side, about 9.45. His wife was on a business trip, so he went to a bar near his apartment for dinner by himself. He got home about 11. Salito made some calls to check out his story. The night guard at his office confirmed he'd left at 7.30. A credit card receipt showed he was at a bar down on Water Street around 9, and the doorman in his building and a neighbor confirmed that he had returned to his apartment at the time that he said. It seemed impossible for him to have abducted two victims, killed one at the pier, and then arranged the death of Theodore Adams in the alley, all between 9.15 and 1. Salito said, we're investigating a very serious crime here. It happened near where you were last night. Did you notice anything that could help us? No, 
Nothing at all. I swear I'd help if I could. The killer could be going to strike again, you know. I'm sorry about that, he said, not sounding very sorry at all. But I panicked. That's not a crime. Salito glanced at his guards. Take him outside for a minute. After he was gone, Baker muttered, waste of time. Sachs shook her head. He knows something. I've got a hunch. Rhyme deferred to Sachs when it came to what he called, with some condescension, the people side of being a cop. Witnesses, psychology, and, God forbid, hunches. Okay, he said. But what do we do with your hunch? It wasn't Sachs who responded, though, but Lon Salido. He said, Got an idea. He opened his jacket, revealing an impossibly wrinkled shirt, and fished out his cell phone. 11.03 a.m. Vincent Reynolds was walking down the chilly streets of Soho, in the blue light of this deserted part of the neighborhood east of Broadway, some blocks from the area's chic restaurants and boutiques. He was fifty feet behind his flower girl, Joanne, the woman who would soon be his. His eyes were on her, and he felt a hunger, keen and electric, as intense as the one he'd felt the night he met Gerald Duncan for the first time, which had proved to be a very important moment for Vincent Reynolds. After the Sally Ann incident, when Vincent got arrested because he lost control, he told himself that he'd have to be smarter. He'd wear a ski mask. He'd take the women from behind so they couldn't see him. He'd use a condom, which helped him slow down anyway. He'd never hunt close to home. He'd vary the techniques and the neighborhoods of the attacks. He'd plan the rapes carefully and be prepared to walk away if there was a risk he'd get caught. Well, that was his theory. But in the past year, it had been getting harder and harder to control the hunger. Impulse would take over, and he'd see a woman by herself on the street and think, I have to have her. Now, I don't care if anybody sees me. The hunger does that to you. Two weeks earlier, he'd been having a piece of chocolate cake and a Coke at a diner up the street from the office where he regularly tempt. He glanced at the waitress, a new one. She had a round face and a slim figure, curls of golden hair. He noticed her tight blue blouse that was two buttons open, and in his soul, the hunger erupted. She smiled at him as she brought his check, and he decided he had to have her. Right away. He heard her say to her boss she was going into the alley for a cigarette. Vincent paid and stepped outside. He walked to the alley and then glanced into it. There she was, in her coat, leaning against the wall, looking away from him. It was late. He preferred the 3 to 11 p.m. shift, and though there were some passers-by on the sidewalk, the alley was completely empty. The air was cold, the cobblestones would be colder, but he didn't care. Her body would keep him warm. It was then that he heard a voice whisper in his ear, Wait five minutes. Vincent jumped and swiveled around to look at a man with a round face and lean body in his fifties, with a calm way about him. He was gazing past Vincent into the alley. What? Wait. Who are you? Vincent wasn't afraid exactly. He was two inches taller, fifty pounds heavier. But the odd look in the man's shockingly blue eyes spooked him. 
That doesn't matter. Pretend we're just friends, talking. Screw that. Heart pounding, hands shaking, Vincent started to walk away. Wait, the man said softly once more. His voice was almost hypnotic. The rapist waited. A minute later, he saw a door open in a building across the alley from the back of the restaurant. The waitress walked to the doorway and spoke to two men. One was in a suit. The other was in a police uniform. Jesus, Vincent whispered. It's a sting, the man said. She's a cop. The owner's running numbers out of the restaurant, I think. They're setting him up. Vincent recovered fast. So, that doesn't matter to me. If you'd done what you had in mind, you'd be in cuffs now. Or shot dead. Had in mind? Vincent asked, trying to sound innocent. I don't know what you're talking about. The stranger only smiled, motioning Vincent up the street. Do you live here? A pause, then Vincent answered, New Jersey. You work in the city? Yeah. You know Manhattan well? Pretty good. The man nodded, looking Vincent up and down. He identified himself as Gerald Duncan and suggested they go someplace warm to talk. They walked three blocks to a diner and Duncan had coffee and Vincent had another piece of cake and a soda. They talked about the weather, the city budget, downtown Manhattan at midnight. Then Duncan said, Just a thought, Vincent. If you're interested in a little work, I could use somebody who isn't overly concerned with the law, and it might let you practice your... hobby? He nodded back in the direction of the alley. Collecting sitcoms from the seventies? asked clever Vincent. Duncan smiled again, and Vincent decided he liked the man. What do you want me to do? I've only been to New York a few times. I need a man who knows the streets, the subways, traffic patterns, neighborhoods, who knows something about the way police work. The details I'll save for later. Hmm. What line are you in? Vincent had asked. Businessman. We'll let it go at that. Hmm. Vincent told himself to leave, but he felt the lure of the man's comment about practicing his hobby. Anything that might help him feed the hunger was worth considering, even if it was risky. They continued to talk for a half hour, sharing some information, withholding some. Duncan explained that his hobby was collecting fine antique watches, which he repaired himself. He'd even built a few from scratch. As he'd finished his fourth dessert of the day, Vincent asked, How did you know she was a cop? Duncan seemed to debate for a moment. Then he said, I've been checking out somebody at the diner. The man at the end of the counter. Remember him? He was in the dark suit. Vincent nodded. I've been following him for the past month. I'm going to kill him. Vincent smiled. You're kidding. I don't really kid. And Vincent had learned that was true. There was no clever Gerald or hungry Gerald. There was just one, calm and meticulous Gerald, who expressed his intention that night to kill the man in the diner, Walter somebody, in the same matter-of-fact way that he'd made good on that promise by cutting the son of a bitch's wrists and watching him struggle until he fell from a pier into the freezing brown water of the Hudson River. 
The watchmaker had gone on to tell Vincent that he was in town to kill other people, too. Among them were some women. As long as Vincent was careful and didn't spend more than twenty or thirty minutes, he could have their bodies after they were dead, to do what he wished. In exchange, Vincent would help him, as a guide to the city and its roads and transportation system, and to stand guard and sometimes drive the getaway car. So, you interested? I guess, Vincent said, though his private response was a lot more enthusiastic than that. And Vincent was now hard at work on this job, following the third victim, Joanne Harper, their flower girl, clever Vincent had dubbed her. He watched her take out a key and disappear through the service door to her workshop. He eased to a stop, ate a candy bar, and leaned against a lamp pole, looking through the shop's grimy window. His hand touched the bulge at his waistband where the buck knife rested. Staring at the vague form of Joanne, turning on lights, taking her coat off, moving around the workshop, she was alone, gripping the knife. He wondered if she had freckles. He wondered what her perfume smelled like. He wondered if she whimpered when she was in pain. Did she... But no, he shouldn't think like this. He was here only to get information. He couldn't break the rules, couldn't disappoint Gerald Duncan. Vincent inhaled the painfully cold air. He should wait. But then Joanne walked near the window. He got a good look at her. Oh, she's pretty. Vincent's palms began to sweat. Of course, he could simply take her now and leave her tied up for Duncan to kill later. That would be something that a friend would understand. They'd both get what they wanted. After all, sometimes you just can't wait. The hunger does that to you. Next time, pack warm. What were you thinking? Riding in a pungent cab, 30-something Catherine Dance held her hands out in front of a backseat heater, exhaling air that wasn't hot, wasn't even warm. At best, she decided, it was uncold. She rubbed together her fingers, tipped in dark red nails, then gave her black-stockinged knees a chance at the air. Dance came from a locale where the temperature was 75, give or take, all year round, and you had to drive up Carmel Valley Road a long, long way to find enough sledding snow to keep your son and daughter happy. In her last-minute packing for the seminar here in New York, somehow she'd forgotten that the Northeast plus December equals the Himalayas. She was reflecting. Here I can't drop the last five pounds of what I gained in Mexico last month, where she'd done nothing but sit in a smoky room interrogating a suspected kidnapper. If I can't lose it, at least the extra weight ought to do its duty as insulation. Ain't fair. She pulled her thin coat more tightly around her. Catherine Dance was a special agent with the California Bureau of Investigation based in Monterey. She was one of the nation's preeminent experts in interrogation and kinesics, the science of observing and analyzing the body language and verbal behavior of witnesses and suspects. She'd been in New York for the past three days presenting her kinesics seminar to local law enforcement agencies. Kinesics is a rare specialty in police work, but to Catherine Dance, there was nothing like it. She was a people addict. They fascinated her. They electrified her. Confounded and challenged her, too. 
these billions of odd creatures moving through the world, saying the strangest and most wonderful and terrible things. She felt what they felt. She feared what scared them. She got pleasure from their joy. Dance had been a reporter after college. Journalism, that profession tailor-made for the aimless with insatiable curiosities. She ended up on the crime beat and spent hours in courtrooms, observing lawyers and suspects and jurors. She realized something about herself. She could look at a witness, listen to his words, and get an immediate sense of when he was telling the truth and when he wasn't. She could look at jurors and see when they were bored or lost or angry or shocked, when they believed the suspect when they didn't. She could tell which lawyers were ill-suited to the bar and which were going to shine. She could spot the cops whose whole heart was in their jobs and the ones who were only biding their time. One of the former in particular caught her eye, a prematurely silver-haired FBI agent out of the San Jose field office, testifying with humor and panache in a gang trial she was covering. She finagled an exclusive interview with him after the guilty verdicts, and he finagled a date. Eight months later, she and William Swenson were married. Eventually bored with the reporter's life, Catherine Dance decided on a career change. Life turned crazy for a time as she juggled her roles as mother of two small children and wife and grad student, but she managed to graduate from UC Santa Cruz with a joint master's in psych and communications. She opened a jury consulting business, advising attorneys which jurors to choose and which to avoid during voir dire jury selection. She was talented and made very good money. But six years ago, she decided to change course once again. With the help of a supportive, tireless husband and her mother and father who lived in nearby Carmel, she headed back to school once more, the California State Bureau of Investigation Training Academy in Sacramento. Catherine Dance became a cop. The CBI doesn't break out kinesics as a specialty, so Dance was technically just another investigative agent, working homicides, kidnappings, narcotics, terrorism, and the like. Still, in law enforcement, talents are spotted early, and news of her talent quickly spread. She found herself the resident expert in interview and interrogation, fine with her, since it gave her some bargaining power to trade off undercover and forensic work, which she had little interest in. She now glanced at her watch, wondering how long this volunteer mission would take. Her flight wasn't until the afternoon, but she'd have to give herself plenty of time to get to JFK. Traffic in the city was horrendous, even worse than the 101 freeway around San Jose. She couldn't miss the plane. She was eager to get back to her children, and, funny about caseloads, the files on your desk never seem to disappear when you're out of the office. They only multiply. The cab squealed to a stop. Dance squinted out the window. Is this the right address? It's the one you gave me. It doesn't look like a police station. He glanced up at the ornate building. Sure don't. That'll be six seventy-five. Yes and no, Dance thought to herself. It was a police station, and yet it wasn't. Lon Salido greeted her in the front hallway. The detective had taken her course in Kinesics the day before at one police plaza and had just called, asking if she could come by now to give them a hand on a multiple homicide. When he'd telephoned, he'd given her the address and she'd assumed it was a precinct house. 
It happened to be filled with nearly as much forensic equipment as the lab at the Monterey CBI headquarters, but was, nonetheless, a private home. And it was owned by Lincoln Rhyme, no less. Another fact Salito had neglected to mention. Dance had heard of Rhyme, of course. Many law enforcers knew of the brilliant quadriplegic forensic detective, but wasn't aware of the details of his life or his role in the NYPD. The fact he was disabled soon failed to register. Unless she was studying body language intentionally, Catherine Dance tended to pay attention to people's eyes. Besides, one of her colleagues in the CBI was a paraplegic, and she was accustomed to people in wheelchairs. Salito now introduced her to Rhyme and a tall, intense police detective named Amelia Sachs. Dance noted at once that they were more than professional partners. No great kinesic deductions were necessary to make this connection. When she walked in, Sachs had her fingers entwined with Rhyme's and was whispering something to him with a smile. Sachs greeted her warmly, and Salito introduced her to several other officers. Dance was aware of a tinny sound coming from over her shoulder, earbuds dangling behind her. She laughed and shut off her iPod, which she carried with her like a life support system. Salito and Sachs told her about the homicide case they needed some help on, a case that Rhyme seemed to be in charge of, though he was a civilian. Rhyme didn't participate much in the discussions. His eyes continually returned to a large whiteboard on which were notations of the evidence. The other officers were giving her details of the case, though she couldn't help but observe Rhyme, the way he squinted at the board, would mutter something under his breath and shake his head as if he was chastising himself for missing something. Occasionally his eyes would close. Once or twice he offered a comment about the case, but he largely ignored Dance. She was amused. The agent was used to skepticism. Most often it arose because she simply didn't look much like a typical cop. This five-foot-five woman with dark blonde hair worn usually as now in a tight French braid, light purple lipstick, iPod earbuds dangling, the gold and abalone jewelry her mother had made, not to mention her passion, quirky shoes. Chasing perps didn't usually figure in Dance's daily life as a cop. Now, though, she suspected she understood Lincoln Rhymes' lack of interest. Like many forensic scientists, he wouldn't put much stock in kinesics and interviewing. He'd probably voted against calling her. As for Dance herself, well, she recognized the value of physical evidence, but it had no appeal to her. It was the human side of crime and crime-solving that made her own heart race. Kinesics versus forensics. Fair enough, Detective Rhyme. While the handsome, sardonic, and impatient criminalist continued to ignore her and gaze at the evidence charts, Dance absorbed the details of the case, which was a strange one. The murders by the self-anointed watchmaker were horrific, sure, but Dance wasn't shocked. She'd worked cases that were just as gruesome, and after all, she lived in California, where Charles Manson had set the standard for evil. Another detective from the NYPD, Dennis Baker, now told her specifically what they needed. They'd found a witness who might have some helpful information, but he wasn't forthcoming with details. He claims he didn't see anything, Sachs added, but I have a feeling he did. Dance was disappointed that it wasn't a suspect, but a witness she'd be interviewing. 
She preferred the challenge of confronting criminals, and the more deceitful the better. Still, interviewing witnesses took much less time than breaking suspects, and she couldn't miss her flight. I'll see what I can do, she told them. She fished in her coach purse and put on round glasses with pale pink frames. Sachs gave her the details about Ari Cobb, the reluctant witness, laying out the chronology of the man's evening, as they'd been able to piece it together, and his behavior that morning. Dance listened carefully as she sipped coffee that Rhyme's caregiver had poured for her, and indulged in half a Danish. When she'd gotten all the background, Dance organized her thoughts. Then she said to them, Okay, let me tell you what I've got in mind. First, a crash course. Lon heard this yesterday at the seminar, but I'll let the rest of you know how I handle interviewing. Kinesics traditionally was studying somebody's physical behavior, body language, to understand their emotional state and whether they were being deceptive or not. Most people, including me, use the term now to mean all forms of communication, not just body language, but spoken comments and written statements, too. First, I'll take a baseline reading of the witness, see how he acts when he's answering things that we know are truthful, name, address, job, things like that. I'll note his gesturing, posture, word choice, and the substance of what he says. Once I have the baseline, I'll start asking questions and find out where he exhibits stress reactions, which means he's either lying or has some important issues with the topic I'm asking him about. Up until then, what I've been doing is interviewing him. Once I suspect he's lying, then the session will become an interrogation. I start to whittle away at him, using a lot of different techniques, until we get to the truth. Perfect, said Baker. Although Rhyme was apparently in charge, Dennis Baker, Dance deduced, was from headquarters. He had the belabored look of a man on whose shoulders an investigation like this ultimately, and politically, rested. You have a map of the area we're talking about, Dance said. I'd like to know the geography of the area involved. You can't be an effective interrogator without it. I like to say, I need to know the subject's terrarium. Lon Salito gave a fast laugh. Dance smiled in curiosity. He explained. Lincoln says exactly the same about forensics. If you don't know the geography, you're working in a vacuum. Right, Link? Sorry, the criminalist asked. Terrarium, you like that? Ah. Uh. His polite smile was the equivalent of Dance's son saying, Whatever. Dance examined the map of Lower Manhattan, memorizing the details of the crime scene and of Ari Cobb's after-work schedule the previous day, as Sachs and a young patrol officer named Pulaski pointed them out. Finally, she felt comfortable with the facts. Okay, let's get to work. Where is he? A room across the hall. Bring him in. p.m. A moment later, an NYPD patrol officer brought in a short, trim businessman wearing an expensive suit. Dance didn't know if they'd actually arrested him, but the way he touched his wrists told her that he'd been in cuffs recently. 
Dance greeted the man who was uneasy and angry and nodded him to a chair. She sat across from him, nothing between them, and scooted forward until she was in a neutral proxemic zone, the term referring to the physical space between a subject and an interviewer. This zone can be adjusted to make the subject more or less comfortable. She was not too close to be invasive, but not so far away as to give him a sense of security. You push the edge of edgy, she'd say in her lectures. Mr. Cobb, my name's Catherine Dance. I'm a law enforcement agent, and I'd like to talk to you about what you saw last night. This is ridiculous. I already told them, a nodded rhyme, everything I saw. Well, I just arrived. I don't have the benefit of your previous answers. Jotting responses, she asked a number of simple questions, where he lived and worked, marital status and the like, which gave her Cobb's baseline reaction to stress. She listened carefully to his answers. Watching and listening are the two most important parts of the interview. Speaking comes last. One of the first jobs of an interviewer is to determine the personality type of the subject, whether he's an introvert or extrovert. These types aren't what most people think. They're not about being boisterous or retiring. The distinction is about how people make decisions. An introvert is governed by intuition and emotion more than logic and reason. An extrovert, the opposite. Assigning personalities helps the interviewer in framing the questions and picking the right tone and physical demeanor to adopt when asking them. For instance, taking a gruff, clipped approach with an introvert will make him withdraw into his shell. Ari Cobb, though, was a classic extrovert and an arrogant one at that. No kid gloves were needed. This was Catherine Dance's favorite kind of subject. She got to kick serious butt when interviewing them. Cobb cut off a question. You've held me way too long. I have to get to work. What happened to that man isn't my fault. Respectful but firm, Dance said, Oh, it's not a question of fault. Now, Ari, let's talk about last night. You don't believe me. You're calling me a liar. I wasn't there when the crime happened. I'm not suggesting you're lying, but there still might have been something you saw that could help us, something you think isn't important. See, part of my job is helping people remember things. I'll walk you through the events of last night, and maybe something will occur to you. Well, there's nothing I saw. I just dropped some money, that's all. I handled the whole thing badly, and now it's a federal case. This is such bull. Let's just go back to yesterday, one step at a time. You were working in your office, Stenfield Brothers Investments, in the Hartsfield Building. Yeah. All day? Right. You got off work at what time? 7.30, a little before. And what did you do after that? I went to Hanover's for drinks. That's on Water Street, she said. Always keep your subjects guessing exactly how much you know. Yeah, it was a martini and karaoke thing. They call it martuni night, like tunes. Clever. I've got a group I meet there. We go a lot. Some friends, close friends. She noticed that his body language meant he was about to add something. Probably he was anticipating her asking for their names. Being too ready with an alibi is an indicator of deception. The subject tends to think that offering them is good enough, and the police won't bother to check it out, or won't be smart enough to figure out that having a drink at 8 p.m. doesn't exculpate you from a robbery that happened at 
You left when? At nine or so. And went home? Yes. To the Upper East Side. A nod. Did you take a limo? Limo, right, he said sarcastically. No, the subway. From which station? Wall Street. Did you walk there? Yes. How? Carefully, he said, grinning. It was icy. Dan smiled. The route? I walked down Water Street, cut over on Cedar to Broadway, then south. And that's where you lost your money clip, on Cedar. How did that happen? Her tone and the questions were completely non-threatening. He was relaxing now. His attitude was less aggressive. Her smiles and low, calm voice were putting him at ease. As near as I can figure, it fell out when I was getting my subway pass. How much money was it again? Over three hundred. Ouch. Yeah, ouch. She nodded at the plastic bag containing the money and clip. Looks like you just hit the ATM, too. Worst time to lose money, right? After a withdrawal. Yep. He offered a grimacing smile. When did you get to the subway? 9.30. It wasn't later, you sure? I'm positive. I checked my watch when I was on the platform. It was 9.35, to be exact. He glanced down at his big gold Rolex, meaning, she supposed, that a watch this expensive was sure to tell accurate time. And then? I went back home and had dinner at a bar near my building. My wife was out of town. She's a lawyer, does corporate financing work. She's a partner. Let's go back to Cedar Street. Were there any lights on, people home in their apartments? No, it's all offices and stores there, not residential. No restaurants? A few, but they're only open for lunch. Any construction? Well, they're renovating a building on the south side of the street. Was there anybody on the sidewalks? No. Cars driving slowly, suspiciously? No, Cobb said. Dance was vaguely aware of the other officers watching her and Cobb. They were undoubtedly impatient, waiting, like most people, for the big confession moment. She ignored them. Nobody really existed except the agent and her subject. Catherine Dance was in her own world, a zone, her son Wes would say. He was the athlete of the family. She looked over the notes she'd taken. Then she closed the notebook and replaced one pair of glasses with another, as if she were exchanging reading for distance glasses. The prescriptions were the same, but instead of the larger round lenses and pastel frames, these were small and rectangular, with black metal frames making her look predatory. She called them her Terminator Specs. Dance eased closer to Cobb. He crossed his legs. In a voice much edgier, she asked, Ari, where did that money really come from? The money? You didn't get it at an ATM. It was during his comments about the cash that she noticed an increased stress level. His eyes stayed locked onto hers, but the lids lowered slightly and his breathing altered, both major deviations from his non-deceptive baseline. Yes, I did, he countered. What bank? A pause. You can't make me tell you that. But we can subpoena your bank records, and we'll detain you until we get them, which could take a day or two. I went to the goddamn ATM. That's not what I asked. 
I asked where the cash in your money clip came from. He looked down. You haven't been honest with me, Ari, which means you're in serious trouble. Now, the money? I don't know. Probably some of it was from petty cash at my firm. Which you got yesterday? I guess. How much? I will subpoena your employer's books, too. He looked shocked at this. He said quickly, A thousand dollars. Where's the rest of it? Three hundred forty in the money clip. Where's the rest? I spent some at Hanover's. It's a business expense. It's legitimate. As part of my job, I was asking where the rest of it is. A pause. I left some at home. At home? Is your wife back now? Could she confirm that? She's still away. Then we'll send an officer to look for the money. Where is it exactly? I don't remember. Over $600? How could you forget where $600 is? I don't know. You're confusing me. She leaned closer still, into a more threatening proxemic zone. What were you really doing on Cedar Street? Walking to the subway. Dance grabbed the map of Manhattan. Hanover's is here. The subway's here. Her finger made a loud sound with every tap on the heavy paper. It makes no sense to walk down Cedar to get from Hanover's to the Wall Street subway station. Why would you walk that way? I wanted some exercise. Walk off the Cosmopolitans and chicken wings. With ice on the sidewalks and the temperature in the teens, you do that often? No, I just happened to last night. If you don't walk it often, then how do you know so much about Cedar Street, the fact that there are no residences, the closing time of the restaurants, and the construction work? I just do. What the hell is this all about? Sweat was dotting his forehead. When you dropped the money, did you take your gloves off to get your subway pass out of your pocket? I don't know. I assume you did. You can't reach into a pocket with winter gloves on. Okay, he snapped. You know so much that I did. With the temperature as cold as it was, why would you do that ten minutes before you got to the subway station? You can't talk to me this way. She said in a firm, low voice, And you didn't check the time on the subway platform, did you? Yes, I did. It was 9.35. No, you didn't. You're not going to be flashing a $5,000 watch on the subway platform at night. Okay, that's it. I'm not saying anything else. When an interrogator confronts a deceptive subject, that person experiences intense stress and responds in various ways to try to escape from that stress. Barriers to the truth, Dance called them. The most destructive and difficult response state to breakthrough is anger, followed by depression, then denial, and finally, bargaining. The interrogator's role is to decide what stress state the subject is in and neutralize it, and any subsequent ones, until finally the subject reaches the acceptance state, that is, confession, in which he finally will be honest. Dance had assessed that though Cobb displayed some anger, he was primarily in the denial state. Such subjects are very quick to plead memory problems and to blame the interrogator for misunderstandings. The best way to break down a subject in denial is to do what Dance had just done. It's known as attacking on the facts. With an extrovert, you slam home weaknesses and contradictions in their stories one after another until their defenses are shattered. Ari, 
You got off work at 7.30 and went to Hanover's. We know that. You were there for about an hour and a half. After that, you walked two blocks out of your way to Cedar Street. You know Cedar real well because you go there to pick up hookers. Last night, between 9 and 9.30, one of them stopped her car near the alley. You negotiated a price and paid her. You got into the car with her. You got out of the car around 10.15 or so. That's when you dropped the money by the curb, probably checking your cell phone to see if your wife had called or getting a little extra cash for a tip. Meanwhile, the killer had pulled into the alley and you noticed it and saw something. What? What did you see? No. Yes, Dan said evenly. She stared at him and said nothing more. Finally, his head lowered and his legs uncrossed. His lip was trembling. He wasn't confessing, but she'd moved him up a step in the chain of stress response states from denial to bargaining. Now Dance had to change tack. She had both to offer sympathy and to give him a way to save face. Even the most cooperative subjects in the bargaining state will continue to lie or stonewall if you don't leave them some dignity and a way to escape the worst consequences of what they've done. She pulled her glasses off and sat back. Look, Ari, we don't want to ruin your life. You got scared. It's understandable. But this is a very dangerous man we're trying to stop. He's killed two people, and he may be going to kill some more. If you can help us find him, what we've learned about you here today doesn't have to come out in public. No subpoenas, no calls to your wife or boss. Dance glanced at Detective Baker, who said, That's absolutely right. Cobb sighed. Eyes on the floor, he muttered. It was three hundred goddamn dollars. Why the hell did I go back there this morning? Greed and stupidity, thought Catherine Dance. But she said kindly, We all make mistakes. A hesitation. Then he sighed again. See, this is the crazy thing. It wasn't much what I saw. I mean, you're probably not going to believe me. I hardly saw anything. I didn't even see a person. If you're honest with us, we'll believe you. Go on. It was about 10.30, a little after. After I got out of the girl's car, I started to walk to the subway. You're right. I stopped and pulled my cell phone out of my pocket. I turned it on to check messages. That's when the money fell out, I guess. It was at the alley. I glanced down it and saw some taillights at the end. What kind of car? Sachs asked. I didn't see the car, just taillights, I swear. Dance believed this. She nodded to Sachs. Wait, Rhyme said abruptly. The end of the alley? So the criminalist had been listening after all. Right, all the way at the end. Then the reverse lights came on and it started backing toward me. The driver was moving pretty fast, so I kept walking. Then I heard the squeal of brakes and he stopped and shut the engine off. He was still in the alley. I kept on walking. I heard the door slam and this noise, like a big piece of metal falling to the ground. That was it. I didn't see anybody. I was past the alley at that point, really. Rhyme glanced at Dance, who nodded that he was telling the truth. Describe the girl you were with, Dennis Baker said. I want to talk to her, too. Cobb said quickly. Thirties. African-American, short, curly hair. Her car was a Honda, I think. I didn't see the license plate. She was pretty. 
He added this as some pathetic justification. Name? Cobb sighed. Tiffany. With two E's, not a Y. Rhyme gave a faint laugh. Call Vice. Ask about girls working regularly on cedar, he ordered his slim, balding assistant. Dance asked a few more questions, then nodded, glanced at Lon Salito, and said, I think Mr. Cobb here has told us as much as he knows. She looked at the businessman and said sincerely, Thanks for your cooperation. He blinked, unsure what to make of her comment. But Catherine Dance wasn't being sarcastic. She never took personally the words or glares, occasionally even spittle or flung objects, from the subjects. A kinesic interviewer has to remember that the enemy is never the subject himself, but simply the barriers to truth that he raises, sometimes not even intentionally. Salito, Baker, and Sachs debated for a few minutes and decided to release the businessman without charging him. The skittish man left, with a look at dance that she was very familiar with. Part awe, part disgust, part pure hatred. After he'd left, Rhyme, who was looking at a diagram of the scene of the killing in the alley, said, This is curious. For some reason, the perp decided he didn't want the Vic at the end of the alley, so he backed up and picked the spot about fifteen feet from the sidewalk. Interesting fact. But is it useful? Sachs nodded. You know it might be. The far end of the alley didn't get any snow, it looked like. They might not have used salt there. We could lift some footprints or tire treads. Rhyme made a call, with an impressive voice recognition program, and sent some officers back to the scene. They called back a short time later, and reported that they had found fresh tire treads at the end of the alley, along with a brown fiber, which seemed to match the ones on the victim's shoe and wristwatch. They uploaded the digital pictures of the fiber and treads and gave the wheelbase dimensions. Despite her lack of interest in forensics, Dance found herself intrigued by this choreography. Rhyme and Sachs were a particularly insightful team. She couldn't help but be impressed when ten minutes later the technical man, Mel Cooper, looked up from a computer screen and said, With the wheelbase in those particular brown fibers, it's probably a Ford Explorer either two or three years old. Odds are it's the older one, Rhyme said. Why did he say that? Dance wondered. Sack saw the frown on her face and answered. The brake squealed. Ah. Salito turned to Dance. That was good, Catherine. You nailed him. Sachs asked, How'd you do it? She explained the process she'd used. I went fishing. I reviewed everything he'd told us, the after-work bar, the subway, the cash and money clip, the alleyway, the chronology of events, and the geography. I checked out his kinesic reaction to each response. The cash was a particularly sensitive subject. What was he doing with the money that he shouldn't have been? An extroverted, narcissistic businessman like him? I figured it was either drugs or sex. But a Wall Street broker's not buying street drugs. He'd have a connection. That left hookers. Simple. That's slick, don't you think, Lincoln? Cooper asked. Dance was surprised to see that the criminalist could shrug. He then said, noncommittally, Worked out well. We got some evidence it might have taken us a while to find. His eyes went back to the board. Link, come on. We got his vehicle make. We wouldn't have if it hadn't been for her.
Salito said to Dance. Don't take it personal. He doesn't trust witnesses. Rhyme frowned at the detective. It's not a contest, Lon. Our goal is the truth, and my experience has been that the reliability of witnesses is somewhat less than that of physical evidence. That's all. Nothing personal about it. Dance nodded. Funny you say that. I tell people in my lectures the same thing, that our main jobs as cops isn't throwing bad guys in jail, it's getting to the truth. She too shrugged. We just had a case in California. Death row prisoner exonerated the day before his scheduled execution. A private eye friend of mine spent three years working for his lawyer to get to the bottom of what happened. He just wouldn't accept that everything was what it seemed to be. The prisoner was 13 hours away from dying, and it turned out he was innocent. If that P.I. hadn't kept looking for the truth all those years, he'd be dead now. Rhyme said, And I know what happened. The defendant was convicted because of a witness's perjured testimony, and DNA analysis freed him, right? Dance turned. No, actually, there were no witnesses to the killing. The real killer planted fake physical evidence implicating him. How about that, said Salido, and he and Amelia Sachs shared a smile. Rhyme glanced at them both coolly. Well, he said to Dance, it's fortunate that things worked out for the best. Now I better get back to work. His eyes returned to the whiteboard. Dance said goodbye to them all and pulled on her coat as Lon Salido showed her out. On the street, Dance walked to the curb where she plugged the iPod earbuds back in and clicked the unit on. This particular playlist contained folk rock, Irish, and some kick-ass Rolling Stones. Once at a concert, she'd done a kinesic analysis of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards for her friend's benefit. She was waving down a cab when she realized there was an odd, unsettled feeling within her. A moment passed before she recognized it. She was feeling a nagging sense of regret that her brief involvement in the watchmaker case was now over. Joanne Harper was feeling good. The trim 32-year-old was in the workshop a few blocks east of a retail flower store in Soho. She was among her friends. That is to say, roses, cymbidium orchids, birds of paradise, lilies, heliconia, anthurium, and red ginger. The workshop was a large, ground-floor area in what had been a warehouse. It was drafty and cold, and she kept most of the rooms dark to protect the flowers. Still, she loved it here. The coolness, the dim light, the smells of lilac and fertilizer. She was in the middle of Manhattan, yes, but it seemed more like a quiet forest. The woman added some more florist's foam to the huge ceramic vase in front of her. Feeling good for a couple of reasons. Because she was working on a lucrative project that she had complete discretion to design. And because of the buzz from her date the previous night. With Kevin, who knew that angel trumpets needed exceptionally good drainage to thrive, and that creeping red sedum flowered in brilliant crimson all the way through September, and that Don Clendenin whacked three over the wall to help the Mets beat Baltimore in 1969, her father had captured two of the homers with his Kodak. Kevin, the cute guy. Kevin with the dimple and grin. Sans present or past wives. Did it get any better than that?
a shadow crossed the front window. She glanced up, but saw no one. This was a deserted stretch of East Spring Street, and pedestrians were rare. She scanned the windows. Really ought to have Ramon clean them. Well, she'd wait till warmer weather. She continued assembling the vase, thinking again about Kevin. Would something work out between them? Maybe. Maybe not. Didn't really matter. Okay, sure it did, but a 32-year-old SUW, single urban woman, had to take the didn't-really-matter approach. But the important thing was she had fun with him. Having played the post-divorce dating game in Manhattan for a few years, she felt entitled to have some fun with another man. Joanne Harper, who bore a resemblance to the redhead on Sex and the City, had come here ten years ago to become a famous artist, live in a storefront studio in the East Village, and sell her paintings out of a Tribeca gallery. But the art world had other ideas. It was too harsh, too petty, too, well, unartistic. It was about being shocking or troubled or rich. Joanne gave up on fine arts and tried graphic design for a while, but was dissatisfied with that, too. On a whim, she took a job in an interior landscaping company in Tribeca and fell in love with the business. She decided that if she was going to starve, at least she'd be hungry doing what she was passionate about. The joke, though, was that she became a success. She managed to open her own company a few years ago. It now included both the Broadway retail store and this, the Spring Street Commercial Operation, which serviced companies and organizations, providing daily flowers for offices and large arrangements for meetings, ceremonies, and special events. She continued to add foam, greens, eucalyptus, and marbles to the vases. The flowers would be added at the last minute. Joanne shivered slightly from the chill air. She glanced at the clock on the dim wall of the workshop. Not too long to wait, she reflected. Kevin had to make a couple of deliveries in the city today. He'd called this morning and told her he'd be at the retail shop in the afternoon. And hey, if you're not doing anything, maybe we could go for some cappuccino or something. Coffee the day after a date? Now that... Another shadow fell on the window. She looked up again quickly. No one. But she felt uneasy. Her eyes strayed to the front door, which she never used. Boxes were stacked up in front of it. It was locked. Or was it? Joanne squinted, but with the glare from the bright sun, she couldn't tell. She walked around the work table to check. She tested the latch. Yes, it was locked. Joanne looked up and gasped. A few feet from her, on the sidewalk outside, was a huge man staring at her. Tall and fat, he was leaning forward and staring through the window of the workshop, shielding his eyes. He was wearing old-fashioned aviator sunglasses with mirrored lenses, a baseball cap, and a cream-colored parka. Because of the glare and the grime on the windows, he couldn't see that she was right in front of him. Joanne froze. People sometimes peeked in, curious about the place, but there was an intensity about his posture, the way he hovered, that bothered her a lot. The front door wasn't special glass. Anyone with a hammer or brick could break in. And with the sparse foot traffic in this part of Soho, an assault here might go completely unnoticed. She backed up. 
Perhaps his eyes grew accustomed to the light, or he found a bit of clean window and noticed her. He jerked back, surprised. He seemed to debate something. Then he turned and disappeared. Stepping forward, Joanne pressed her face against the window, but she couldn't see where he'd gone. There was something way creepy about him, the way he just stood there, hunched over, head cocked, hands stuffed into his pockets, staring through those weird sunglasses. Joanne wheeled the vases to the side and glanced outside again. No sign of the man. Still, she gave in to the temptation to leave and go to the retail store, check the morning's receipts, and chat with her clerks until Kevin arrived. She put on her coat, hesitated, and left via the service door. She looked up the street. No sign of him. She started toward Broadway, west, the direction the big man had gone. She stepped into a thick beam of perfectly clear sunlight which seemed nearly hot. The brilliance blinded her and she squinted, alarmed that she couldn't see clearly. Joanne paused, not wanting to walk past the alley up the street. Had the man gone in there? Was he hiding, waiting for her? She decided to walk east, the opposite direction, and loop around to Broadway on Prince Street. It was more deserted that way, but at least she wouldn't have to walk past any alleys. She pulled her coat tighter around her and hurried up the street, head down. Soon the image of the fat man had slipped from her mind, and she was thinking once again about Kevin. Dennis Baker went downtown to report on their progress, and the rest of the team continued to examine the evidence. The fax phone rang, and Rhyme looked at the unit eagerly, in hopes it was something helpful. But the pages were for Amelia Sachs. Rhyme was watching her face closely as she read them. He knew the look, like a dog after a fox. What, Sachs? She shook her head. The analysis of the evidence from Ben Creeley's place in Westchester. No IAFIS hits on the prints, but there were leather texture marks on some of the fireplace tools and on Creeley's desk. Who opens desk drawers wearing gloves? There was, of course, no database of glove marks, but if Sachs could find a pair in a suspect's possession that matched this pattern, that would be solid circumstantial evidence placing him at the scene, nearly as good as a clear friction ridge print. She continued to read. And the mud I found in front of the fireplace, it doesn't match the soil in Creeley's yard. Higher acid content and some pollutants, like from an industrial site, Sachs continued. There were also some traces of burned cocaine in the fireplace. She looked at Rhyme and gave a wry smile. A bummer if my first murder vic turns out to be not so innocent. Rhyme shrugged. None or dope dealer sacks, murders still murder. What else do you have? The ash I found in the fireplace. The lab couldn't recover much, but they found these. She held up a photo of financial records, like a spreadsheet or ledger, which seemed to show entries totaling millions of dollars. They found part of a logo or something on it. The techs are still checking it out, and they'll send the entries to a forensic accountant, see if he can make any sense of it. And they also found part of his calendar. Stuff about getting his car oil changed, a haircut appointment. Hardly the agenda for the week you're going to kill yourself, by the way. Then the day before he died, he went to the St. James Tavern. 
she tapped the sheet, the recovered page from his calendar. A note from Nancy Simpson explained about the place. Bar on East 9th Street, sleazy neighborhood. Why'd a million-dollar accountant go there? Seems funny. Not necessarily. She glanced Rhyme's way, then walked to the corner of the room. He got the message and followed in the red Storm Arrow wheelchair. Sachs crouched down beside him. He wondered if she'd take his hand, since some sensation had returned to his right fingers and wrist, holding hands had taken on a great importance to them both. But there was a very thin line between their personal and their business lives, and she now remained pure professional. Rhyme, she whispered. I know what... Let me finish, he grunted. I have to follow up on this. Priorities. Your case is colder than the watchmaker, Sachs. Whatever happened to Creeley, even if he was murdered, the perp's probably not a multiple doer. The watchmaker is. He has to be our priority. Whatever evidence there is about Creeley will still be there after we nail our boy. She was shaking her head. I don't think so, Rhyme. I've pushed the button. I've started asking questions. You know how that works. Word's starting to spread about the case. Evidence and suspects could be disappearing right now. And the watchmaker's probably targeting somebody else right now, too. He could be killing somebody else right now. And believe me, if there's another murder and we drop the ball, there'll be hell to pay. Baker told me the request for us came from the top floor. Insisted. I won't drop the ball. You get another scene, I'll run it. If Bo Howman stages a tactical op, I'll be there. Rhyme gave an exaggerated frown. Tactical? You don't get dessert until you finish your vegetables. She laughed, and now he felt the pressure of her hand. Come on, Rhyme, we're in Copland. Nobody runs just one case at a time. Most major cases' desks are littered with a dozen files. I can handle two. Troubled by a foreboding he couldn't articulate, Rhyme hesitated, then said, Let's hope, Sax. Let's hope. It was the best blessing he could give. 1.25 p.m. He came here? Amelia Sachs, standing beside a planter that smelled of urine and sported a dead yellow stalk, glanced through the grimy window. She suspected the place would be bad, knowing the address, but not this bad. Sachs was standing outside the St. James Tavern on a wedge of broken concrete rising from the sidewalk. The bar was on East 9th Street in Alphabet City, the nickname referring to the north-south avenues that ran through it, A, B, C, and D. The place had been a terror some years ago, a remnant of the gang wastelands on the Lower East Side. It had improved somewhat. Crack houses were morphing into expensive fix-em-uppers with few, but it was still a rough-and-tumble hood. Sitting in the snow at Sachs's feet was a discarded hypodermic needle, and a spent nine-millimeter shell casing rested on the window ledge six inches from her face. What the hell had accountant, venture capitalist, two-homeowning, beamer-driving Benjamin Creeley been doing in a place like this the day before he died? At the moment, the large, shabby tavern wasn't too crowded. Through the greasy window, she spotted aging locals at the bar tables, 
spongy women and scrawny men who'd get a lot or most of their daily calories from the bottle. In a small room in the back were some white men in jeans, dungarees, work shirts. Four of them, all loud, even through the window she could hear their crude voices and laughter. She thought immediately of the punks who'd spend hour after hour in the mafia social clubs, some slow, some lazy, but all of them dangerous. One glance told her these were men who'd hurt people. Entering the place, Sachs found a stool at the small end of the bar's L where she was less visible. The bartender was a woman of around fifty with a narrow face, red fingers, hair teased up like a country western singer's. There was a weariness about her. Sachs thought, it's not that she's seen it all, it's that everything she has seen has been in places just like this. The detective ordered a Diet Coke. Hey, Sonia, called a voice from the back room. In the filthy mirror behind the bar, Sachs could see it belonged to a blonde man in extremely tight blue jeans and a leather jacket. He had a weaselly face and appeared to have been drinking for some time. Dickie here wants you. He's a shy boy. Come on over here. Come on and visit the shy boy. Screw you, somebody else shouted, presumably Dickie. Come here, Sonia, sweetheart. Sit on shy boy's lap. It'll be comfy, real smooth, no bumps. Some guffaws. Sonia knew that she too was the butt of their mean humor, but she called back gamely. Dickie, he's younger than my son. That's okay, everybody knows he's a mother-effer. Huge laughter. Sonia's eyes met Sax's, then looked away quickly, as if she'd been caught aiding and abetting the enemy. But one advantage of drunks is that they can't sustain anything, cruelty or euphoria, for very long, and soon they were on to sports and rude jokes. Sax sipped her soda, asked Sonia, So, how's it going? The woman offered an unbreakable smile. Just fine. She had no interest in sympathy, especially from a woman who was younger and prettier and didn't tend bar in a place like this. Fair enough. Sax got down to business. She flashed her badge, subtly, and then showed her a picture of Benjamin Creeley. Do you remember seeing him in here? Him? Yeah, a few times. What's this about? Did you know him? Not really. Just sold him some drinks. Wine, I remember. He wanted red wine. We got crappy wine, but he drank it. He was pretty decent, not like some people. No need to glance into the back room to indicate whom she meant. But I haven't seen him for a while, maybe a month. Last time he came in, he got into a fight, so I figured he wouldn't be coming back. What happened? I don't know. Just heard some shouting, and then he was storming out the door. Who was he arguing with? I didn't see it. I just heard. He ever do drugs that you saw? No. Were you aware that he killed himself? Sonia blinked. No. We're following up on his death, and I'd appreciate keeping it to yourself, my asking you about it. Yeah, sure. Can you tell me anything about him? God, I don't even know his name. I guess he was in here maybe three times. He have a family? Yes, he did. Oh, that's tough. That's harsh.
wife and a teenage boy. Sonia shook her head. Then she said, well, Gertie might have known him better. She's the other bartender. She works more than me. Is she here now? Nah, should be here in a while. You want I should have her call you? Give me her number. The woman jotted it down. Sax leaned forward and nodded toward the picture of Creeley and said, Did he meet anybody in particular here that you can remember? All I know is it was in there, where they usually hang. She nodded at the back room. A millionaire businessman and that crowd? Had two of them been the ones who'd broken into the Creeley's Westchester house and had the marshmallow roast in his fireplace? Sachs looked into the mirror, studying the men's table, littered with beer bottles, ashtrays, and gnawed chicken wing bones. These guys had to be in a crew. Maybe young capos in an organized crime outfit. There were a lot of Sopranos franchises around the city. They were usually petty criminals, but often it was the smaller crews who were more dangerous than the traditional mafia, which avoided hurting civilians and steered clear of crack and meth and the seamier side of the underworld. She tried to get her head around a Benjamin Creeley gang connection. It was tough. You see them with pot, coke, any drugs? Sonia shook her head. Nope. Sax leaned forward and whispered to Sonia, You know what crew they're connected with? Crew? A gang. Who's their boss, who they report to? Anything. Sonia didn't speak for a moment. She glanced at Sachs to see if she was serious and then gave a laugh. <laughs> They're not in a gang. I thought you knew. They're cops. At last, the clocks, the watchmaker's calling cards, arrived from the bomb squad with a clean bill of health. Oh, you mean they didn't find any really tiny weapons of mass destruction inside? Rhyme asked caustically. He was irritated that they'd been out of his possession, more risk of contamination, and at the delay in their arrival. Pulaski signed the chain of custody cards, and the patrolman who delivered the clocks left. Let's see what we've got. Rhyme moved his wheelchair to the examination table as Cooper unpacked the clocks from plastic bags. They were identical, the only difference being the blood crusted on the base of the clock that had been left on the pier. They seemed old. They weren't electric. You wound them by hand. But the components were modern. The works inside were in a sealed box which had been opened by the bomb squad, but both clocks were still running and showed the correct time. The housing was wood, painted black, and the face was antiqued white metal. The numbers were Roman numerals, and the hour and minute hands, also black, ended in sharp arrows. There was no second hand, but the clocks clicked loudly every second. The most unusual feature was a large window in the top half of the face that displayed a disc on which were painted the faces of the moon. Centered in the window now was the full moon, depicted with an eerie human face, staring outward with ominous eyes and thin lips. The full cold moon is in the sky. Cooper went over the clocks with his usual precision and reported that there were no friction ridge prints and only minimal trace evidence, all of which matched samples that Sachs had collected around both scenes, meaning that none of it had been picked up in the watchmaker's car or residence. Who makes them? Arnold Products, Framingham, Massachusetts. 
Cooper did a Google search and read from the website. They sell clocks, leather goods, office decorations, gifts, upscale. Stuff's not cheap. A dozen different models of clocks. This is the Victorian. Genuine brass mechanism, oak, modeled after a British clock sold in the 1800s. Costs $54 wholesale. They don't sell to the public. Have to go through the dealer. Serial numbers? Only on the mechanisms, not the clocks themselves. Okay, Rhyme ordered. Make the call. Me? Pulaski asked, blinking. Yup, you. I'm supposed to call the manufacturer and give them the serial numbers of the mechanism. Pulaski nodded. Then see if they can tell us which store it was shipped to. One hundred percent, Rhyme said. The rookie took out his phone, got the number from Cooper, and dialed. 